This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Kaye, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Power Athlete Radio. The legendary Raw Wolf graces the stage of the 2015 Power Athlete Symposium in Costa Mesa, California. A listen to this awesome question and answer session will leave you busting with new insights into nutrition, sleep, and other recovery practices. When Raw Wolf speaks, people listen. Touching on topics like new pre and post workout research, insulin responses, cholesterol 101, and finding your true training capacity, Rob leaves no stone unturned. In true form, he fields the questions from our attending coaches with ease and intellect. There's so much excellent flow going on in this conversation that we chose to keep the audience questions in the audio, despite their being a bit muffled. However, what you will hear with distinct clarity is Rob's passion for health and performance, and for imparting even a fraction of that onto you, the listener. This is episode 134. Power Athlete Nation, what's going on? This is Luke here. No Denny K because we are on site at Power Athlete HQ. Uh, after the first speaker of our 2015 Power Athlete Symposium, Mr. Rob Wolf. Round of applause, everybody. <laughs> so, um, Rob, I guess give a, a brief synopsis of what we were just kind of talking about. We talked about performance optimization, and really, I, I think at the outset, the big takeaways were asking, who are you, you know, as an athlete, uh, you know, what type of work you do, how old are you, and then also looking at what your goals are, and really trying to overlay those so that you have a, a clear view of where you want to go with regards to performance, health, and longevity, you know, so trying to figure out where you're at on the map, where you want to go on the map, and kind of the trade-offs inherent to that, and then talking about sleep, food, exercise, gut biome that's going to play into getting that, getting you to your goal. Perfect. And it, I mean, and so much more. And, uh, and what it came down to is there's, you know, questions about individual individualization and how we can create a customized approach and what is, is that truly effective? And, uh, and I know that nutrition is such a, a sketchy or hairy subject we can go down so many different veins and I and what we have here is we got 35 people in the crowd and uh, we wanted to open up the Q&A for the podcast just to to give a lot of our listeners a, a taste of what what's going down here this weekend so I guess um, if you have a question let's just go with the old hand raise method Connor Lynch so we got all these uh, great uh, descriptions for nutrition with specific caloric uh, numbers based on you want to lose, maintain, gain. Is there any prescription you've got there for sleep in terms of numbers to hit? Uh, how do we get people a number they can get excited about? Oh, I need to hit this metric. Man, question for the sleep. You know, I was just talking to uh, somebody moments ago about like, do you partition carbs to the AM? Do you partition carbs to the PM? That again becomes really um, pretty subjective story. I, you, one thing is that if people are chronically underfed, they'll probably find it difficult to, to sleep because it's kind of a stress response. Uh, this is maybe an argument for sticking carbs more in the evening 
because we will tend to get a blunting of cortisol. Uh, it uh, kind of turns on the parasympathetic nervous system. You feel more relaxed and you're kind of more amenable towards going to sleep. Uh, but that's a it, it, there, there's some nuance to it. But one thing to definitely keep in mind, it, you know, if we're trying to lean somebody out, this is maybe an argument for a zigzag diet, where you have a couple of days of lower calorie intake, maybe lower carbohydrate intake, then a couple of days of higher, so that we we don't cause an undue stress on the system over a period of time. And then also, you just have to play with it a little bit. And uh, again, whatever's probably going to optimize sleep for folks is the way that you want to go with things. So they'll play with more or less carbs, you, you know, for that last meal, and then uh, higher or lower glycemic load. Like, do they do well with potatoes versus like lentils, being a high versus low glycemic load? And those are some really good things to play. If I could, if I could also, as opposed to considering in, uh, in conjunction with nutrition, on its own, what would your baseline metrics for sleep in general be? If I'm going to get an excited, have to excited about, hey, you need to hit this number of hours or his time. How do I spell that one? So I write it down. completely answered not the question that you asked. Sorry about that. But it was really good. I mean, we, yeah. <laughs> still pretty solid. I do my best work when I have no idea what, what I'm, I'm actually saying. Um, the, the way to get people motivated about sleep, um, man, it, it's just the greatest return on investment that they're going to get from anything, regardless of training stimulus, regardless of uh, nutrition. And also, if they are undersleeping, it you can do anything that you want with regards to nutrition, and you aren't going to get the body composition that you want. Like it, it is just the the lowest hanging of low hanging fruit that you could get. Um, we the the really challenging people that we see are kind of corporate exec, hard charger, type A, I'll sleep when I'm dead, you know, sleep is for the week. And what I do usually is challenge them, you know, give me one week where you really legitimately sleep, you go to bed earlier, um, not a lot of electronics, like that's a biggie for the, you know, the sleep hygiene, uh, pitch black room, no electronics in the room, uh, your bed is for sleep or sex only. It's not to say that you can't have sex elsewhere, but you only, you only, you know, you're not watching TV in bed and all that stuff. And so really uh, addressing sleep hygiene. And um, if you can just get people to try it, usually they will hate you because it ends up impacting their social life and a bunch of other things like that. But they end up looking, feeling, performing better immediately. But it can be a hard sell for some folks. And then you have, a, particularly for us, I think we work with a lot of police, military, and firefighters. Uh, people in the uh, medical professions kind of fall into this too, and new parents definitely fall into this. If you are forced into a, a scenario where you can't sleep or you have a, a flip circadian rhythm because you're doing shift work, it's very difficult. And the, the takeaway with that is just when you can sleep, protect it at gunpoint. Dark room, use a, a Doc Parsley sleep cocktail, find some other sort of uh, non-pharmaceutical sleep aid that works. Um, Ambien, alcohol, uh, diphenhydramine like Benadryl, they do not make you sleep, they make you unconscious. Um, it, uh, metabolically, it's not too much different than if I hit Luke in the head with a brick. Mm. Nobody would say Luke was asleep. He's that makes sense and, with the alcohol. <laughs> and and the, the, the restorative element to that is, is similar. Like the, the, you know, people say, oh, I have a couple of glasses of wine to relax in the evening and it helps me sleep. It makes you fall into the first stage of sleep faster, but you don't get into level three and four sleep, which is where the real restoration occurs. And so that, that's one of these things where 
you've got to dr uh, drink as far away from bedtime as you can. So what do you do in that case? Day drinking. You, you wake up and start drinking. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Rob Wolf said we have to start day drinking. Day drinking. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, I mean, the sleep hygiene, booze, um, other sleep aids, like those are the biggies. And then as far as motivating the person, if you can just get them to try it, then they're gonna be pretty bought in after that. Like it's really an eye opener. My wife is working with our next door neighbor and this gal has had autoimmune conditions, some significant weight gain because of the systemic inflammatory issue. She has four kids, great kids, great family, but like she was really letting the kids dictate her schedule. And my wife was just on her again, like she's a, a feisty Italian woman. And so she was on her about this stuff. And she basically said, I'm going to bed at nine o'clock. You kids are making your, your lunches. And we, she had been stalled at this weight loss and stalled with uh, some progress on her autoimmune kind of uh, resolution. As soon as she started sleeping better, like she dropped a pant size in like a week and stuff like that. So, I mean, it, it, it's really amazing. Like, it, uh, uh, sleep sounds like this magical pill and it really is. Like, it, it's just amazing how much better things work when they are sleeping. But it's a hard, it's a hard sell. I, I totally get it. Is, yeah. is there any merit to a sleep bank? So say I am those eight hours and life makes me only get five or six because we got to travel. So where do I make it up? Is it a week window, a two week window? Do you have any experience with that? Yeah, and uh, I, I pull all this stuff from Doc Parsley. I am not knowledgeable on this at all. I'm completely stealing all his material. Uh, there's great studies showing that banking sleep definitely mitigates effects downstream. Um, there's an unfortunate practice in a lot of the special operations community when folks are preparing for deployment and they know they're gonna be on night ops, they start actually staying up to get ready for that event and it's a horrible mistake. Like you try to stay as tightly on your normal circadian rhythm, you sleep as best you can, as long as you can, because as you say, it, it, the only analogy that I, I can think of there is, will getting kicked in the balls prepare you for additional getting kicked in the balls? <laughs> only if it's so hard that they're just gone, you know? <laughs> that's the only thing, and that's not really a, a great outcome. So uh, to the degree that you can bank sleep, catch up on sleep, that's really, it, it will help, and there's great uh, research to support that. Uh, before we get going on other questions, I want to go back to, you know, talking about the hard sell to the execs and, and I guess one of your, or one of our experiences with the, the high level executive is they do, they look for lifestyle fixes, much like they look for business fixes. And the term that you, you kind of closed with was hacks, mm -hmm. right? And I, I want to get kind of a spicy Rob Wolf going on, on why you don't like a lot of the hacks out there. And uh, just also give a disclaimer that our definition of hack at power athlete is someone who is like hacking shit up. Like right. that guy's a, a hack. He's a jabroni. <laughs> Jamoke. <laughs> so like, uh, you know, it's the, this biohacking shortcut. And, and I guess the lesson that we closed the, the lecture with was there's no shortcuts. There's no hack, but what, what are some of these hacks out there and why did, why they piss you off so much? Yeah. The, the term hack pisses me off in general because it, it, again, it implies that there's a shortcut to the stuff and there's not, you, you, we have fundamentals and then you have consistency and you find the fundamentals, whether it's sleep, food, exercise, and you, if you're consistent with that, then you make progress. And if you don't, then you're not going to make progress. And on the sleep front, there are some things like polyphasic sleep, 
uh, where people will sleep 20 minutes every four hours or something like that. These are mitigation techniques and they're very well vetted out in the military scene, particularly pilots, you know, like they have a, a really amazing um, kind of matrix for you can be awake for 36 hours if you get a nap every, you know, five hours. It needs to be 20 minutes because it drops you into the level one, level two sleep and you get a restoration of your cognitive function. It doesn't restore the body, so uh, you know. So did? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of very uh, creative people, they they will use this, but it's, um, you're, you're still, there's some downside to it. There, there's some downside to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of creative people that get a serious mileage out of heroin. And there's, also, there's some downside to that too. It's not, you know, we would probably have much less music if uh, opiates had never been discovered, but you know, there's some, some downside to that, but the polyphasic sleep is one of them that gets sold as, Hey, this is even better than normal sleep. And it's not, it is absolutely not. Now, again, if you're in an austere environment or you're really under a lot of pressure, like we have two kids under the age of four, and when we can grab a nap, I grab a nap because it plugs the hole on that. Uh, the average parent, um, by the time that their child is two years old, they have missed six months of sleep. Ugh. And that's no fucking joke. Like, yeah. and, and it's pretty, pretty accurate. Maybe you get a little more lucky, maybe you get a little less lucky on that, but that's a significant impact. And if you can grab a nap, then it will help a ton, but it's not as good, but it's better than doing nothing. But I would say probably the polyphasic sleep is one of the biggest like hacks that, that are sold as a, uh, you know, sleep only better than sleep, but it, it, it's really not. It's, it's a little bit, you know, I guess maybe an analogy there is that we know in training circles, uh, high intensity intervals can be very beneficial for building initial aerobic capacity and anaerobic capacity, but you only have about a, a four week window on that of adaptation. And then aerobic and anaerobic capacity drops off and the person goes into an overtraining sequence. So again, we have to drop back to training fundamentals. You have to build an aerobic base and you need some periodization and switching things up to be able to, to uh, uh, make that work long-term. And we're just, think about this a little bit from an evolutionary perspective. Um, if you buy into evolution, uh, every organism on the planet sleeps. How precarious is your life while you're sleeping? Would it be easy for something to kill you and eat you? Yeah, and everything on the planet sleeps and it has to figure out a strategy to deal with that, that sleep process, but no organism on the planet has figured out how to not sleep mm -hmm. because it's part, you know, it's just baked into the cake. We have this active activity while we're awake and then we need a restorative feature to that on the back end. And if biology had figured out a way around that, it would have figured it out by now. So, you, you know, we think that we can circumvent biology and we can't. Again, it becomes a story of trade-offs, whether you, you know, you're trying to finish a PhD or you're in your residency or something, you're gonna have to give up some performance and maybe some health to, to reach this, um, this ultimate goal, but it comes at a cost and we just need to recognize that and then do mitigating tactics like polyphasic sleep, but it doesn't replace sleep at all. Cool. Chad, do you have a question? Yeah. Uh, can you elaborate on the problems with sugar intake post-traumatic brain injury and then parlay that into some advice or recommendations for, let's say, high school football athletes during the season, practice, training, and all that? Yeah, you know, there's some great research emerging that, that looks at traumatic brain injury, which is, that's a whole interesting topic in and of itself. Uh, and again, thinking about police, military, fire personnel, youth athletics, 
heading a soccer ball is a small level traumatic brain injury. Going down a roller coaster where you get a 1G change in your body position is a small level traumatic brain injury. Deploying a parachute is a low grade traumatic brain injury. Firing a 50 cal rifle is a traumatic brain injury. So there are people out there that are sustaining traumatic brain injuries every day, all the time. And what happens in that TBI environment is that the brain becomes transiently for a short term, becomes insulin resistant. And, and kind of two things happen with that. If it's insulin resistant, then it becomes starved for a fuel substrate, which normally it runs off of glucose. If it becomes starved for that fuel substrate, you can get some damage that occurs to the neurons. The neurons don't like dramatic changes in blood glucose. If it goes too high, goes too low, the neurons die. And then we get a feed forward mechanism of additional injury to the brain. And some of these uh, uh, sugary drinks spike insulin. And you would think that maybe that would be a good thing under the circumstances of that, that uh, you know, uh, insulin resistant brain. And I don't, I, I gotta be honest, I don't fully understand the mechanisms on it, but it, what appears to happen is that you increase the inflammatory response in the brain and we actually get a worsening of that process. Uh, there are some pretty good animal studies and even some human studies uh, where people who've been dehydrated, exposed to a, a TBI type event, but they just rehydrate with water, we don't see a worsening of the inflammatory response. And then if they get some sort of a sugary, dense carbohydrate drink, it seems to worsen that response. And it's, uh, it's pretty cryptic and really, really important for, I mean, youth athletics, police, military, fire, um, anybody in combative type, type training, like they're all facing this problem. How quickly could that react? Like, let's say during you know, competition, you kind of function in paradigm function. You know, that quickly during competition, like you're as opposed to you're hydrating water or air, right? Say, say that again. I'm not sure I fully. So, so if you're, you know, a football athlete and you're obviously experiencing trying to the day, and you're I guess in the moment it could be, but what we're really, what I'm really concerned with is the long-term cumulative effects there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know that you would probably notice that much of an effect in the moment. Um, but this is maybe an argument for like using a, a ketone ester or a ketone salt during an event because it provides an alternate fuel substrate that actually is anti-inflammatory. And, and if the brain is insulin resistant and not able to access glucose very effectively, those ketone bodies, and even actually uh, there's a product that's been out for ages, um, Cytomax, uh, lactate itself, like a polylactate solution is another way to address this. So you're not introducing more glucose to the system but you're introducing one of these carboxylic acids either out of the lactate pathway or out of the ketone body pathway that can provide an alternate fuel substrate for folks. So I, I'm actually revisiting the, this product called Cytomax, which is a polylactate uh, product. And I think that the total carbohydrate load in it is pretty low and it's mainly providing fuel from that, that polylactate kind of, kind of substrate. And in my mind, and again, a lot some of this stuff is a, a bit of a guess, but if you are able to circumvent the, um, the limited glucose input, not increase inflammation, but provide another substrate for the neurons, then you're gonna mitigate that, that pro-inflammatory effect. Now, Chad, are you talking, because I know you have the, the Athlete Factory, tons of contact sports athletes. So you're saying, if, 
your guys on the sideline are armed with some of these options and they know they got their bell rung because anyone's played contact sports. You know, when you start speaking French and you never learn French, you're like, I think I'm coming. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but when, you know, when they give the tap or pull, um, immediately have this stuff prepared, you know, giving, cause I, do you have a good relationship with your coaches? Yes. So, you know, arming them with that information and with these, these alternatives, you're talking about, that's what you're looking for is kind of that, exactly. that approach, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. Paula. Um, this goes back to a comment that John made about, and it's also customization. He said that he doesn't require as many carbohydrates because he uses them very efficiently, as opposed to who requires more because he uses them inefficient. Inner workout potato chips. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I like your, I like the way you're rolling. That, that sounds good. Both, you know, high level athletes. So why is that? Is it, that's a really good question. I mean, clearly there's some genetics there. Like we, uh, you have the hormonal response. So insulin, glucagon, that whole story. You have gut microbiota. So like what type of gut bacteria these guys have. If you have somebody that has a disordered gut microbiota, and they consume simple carbohydrates or even just carbohydrates in general, when you have a patho pathological or pathogenic gut microbiota, it makes you sick when you eat it. Like you feel foggy headed, you feel lethargic. Um, so, I mean, that's a layer of the onion. Another layer of it is the genetics of um, just like your, your cellular makeup, like what type of enzymes do, do the enzymes that you have are they predisposed towards fat mobilization and utilization? Are they more carbohydrate oriented? So you have a really complex puzzle there. And the interesting thing with the gut microbiota, that can change day to day. Like if you are, a, again, a night shift person, you, or you, let's say you're not a night shift person, but you have one night of disordered sleep, your gut bacteria is different and more pathologic the day after disordered sleep than it was the day before. So even, you know, you think about genetics and you think about some other physiological components that gut microbiota can change day to day and can be pathological or non-pathological just, just based off of that. Like it'd be interesting to further test these guys do a genomic analysis of their gut microbiota and see if there's a really big change there. Oh, and it's, yeah. <laughs> Paul, Paul asked the question and it's her phone going off. That's cool. <laughs> You could let it roll, and then you have to answer it on speakerphone. Did, did you guys? Did you guys? Did, did you guys see um, the the onion had a piece, and it was uh, twisted. Uh, an aged twisted sister um, finally acquiesces and says they will take it. <laughs> awesome. So you, you know um, that was a lot of me jabbering, probably because I don't know the exact answer to it. Like it, there's just so many variables to that, I would be really interested in looking at gut microbiome to see if there's a significant difference there. And maybe like John being the bastard that he is, I wouldn't be surprised if he's got like this Inuit Hadza perfect gut microbiome and like all the rest of us have this like super fucked up westernized uh, uh, gut biome. And so then if we did some uh, prebiotic post uh, probiotic tinkering with Luke, would that alter his uh, glucose utilization? Because again, like if you make somebody inflamed, 
far down the road do I want to get with this? When somebody experiences sepsis, say like they're, they're going in and doing surgery and they nick the bowel and, and they become septic, the bacteria that spill into our circulation, it releases this stuff called LPS, lipopolysaccharide, and it makes us diabetic now, like instantly flips a switch. And, and the difference between sepsis and type 2 diabetes is virtually impossible to tell if you were looking at the blood work on these two people. A septic patient looks essentially like a, a horrifically controlled type 2 diabetic. Um, we, being westernized folks, typically are running around with some degree of low-level sepsis. And when you are inflamed, it makes you insulin resistant, which makes you not all that good at utilizing carbohydrates as a substrate. And because you're insulin resistant, you can't access fat as a fuel substrate all that well. Everything just, just kind of sucks. So could this all boil down to just changes in the gut microbiome? Could be, but I, 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 I don't know. And let's, this is let's where try it. it's, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is really, for me, the interesting next step is when we start overlaying gut biome with genetics and input output of, of training stimulus and nutritional stimulus. Um, but it's, it, it's wickedly complex. There's a, there was just a, a paper in Cell that basically made the point that um, all the stuff is highly individualized. Like, I, I don't know if you guys saw it. It's an amazing, really beautifully done paper. But they had folks that they put through this, this protocol where they looked at their genetics, looked at their blood glucose level. They actually inserted a, a continuous blood glucose monitor that monitored blood glucose every five minutes. So they, they knew they had 800 people in this. They ended up with like 5 million blood glucose data points over the, the course of eight weeks. And uh, what they found is that there was this massive variation. Like some people had virtually no insulin response to carbohydrates and their blood glucose barely went up. It was well maintained. It didn't matter what type of carbohydrate it was. They had some really interesting examples where um, one person ate a cookie and a banana separately. The cookie caused high blood glucose response. The banana caused low blood glucose response. Another person, the banana caused high blood glucose response. The cookie caused almost no blood glucose response. And there's all kinds of potential reasons behind that. But this is where it becomes really, really difficult to, to pin down a, uh, a one-size-fits-all recommendation. You have to really, and this is where maybe you get in and you start doing some uh, post-meal finger sticks to see what blood glucose levels are and track that over three or four hours. Eat a very monotonous, similar diet over the course of a couple of weeks so that you can track that. This gets kind of neurotic, but it really gives you a lot of great data to, to you know, ferret out some of that stuff. Yeah, I wish that I had a one-size-fits-all thing and I could just be like, okay, I'm going to start coconut farming, but I, <laughs> yeah, I just can't do it. So, uh, Levi, you didn't travel far enough. Dave, <laughs> did you have a question? I did. I, I actually had two real quick. Can you touch on the, the sort of sleep deprivation thing a little bit? Maybe it's time to go but, you know, like, in that community, like, that is a big thing. Like, people are like, how you train for being up for two days? You stay up. Right? You say that's not. Well, there, there's a selection process versus then what they do after selection. So, you know, like if, it, you know, going through uh, BUDS and Hell Week as a SEAL, what they're checking is, is where do these people break and do they break? And, and uh, some interesting data that, that comes out of the SEAL community, these, these folks, when they're placed under stress, they tend to get about 600% more of this, this stuff called neuropeptide Y. And it's a, a stress inoculation uh, a hormone neuro, neurotransmitter 
Most of the rest of us, when we get placed under stress, neuropeptide Y drops. So these guys actually have a beneficial response and they have a response that is off the Richter better. But you can still break these guys. And what, what doesn't get taken home from a lot of those communities, the selection process is critical to sort you know, the, the people who can deal with this type of, of volume and the, the intensity of it and everything. But you don't necessarily need to train like that all the time afterwards. So is that uh, response genetic? So these guys are gravitating towards it or does it just, uh, can it be trained? I would say it's largely genetic in, in my opinion. Not, yeah. not a process of their prior service training, kind of something that they've adapted to up until that point. I think it's genetic. I, 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 you know, just like, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure that somewhere in John's, you know, like youth, uh, uh, you know, he got exposed to 40 meter runs, 400 meter runs, 800 meter runs, and he was way better at the 40 meter stuff than mm -hmm. what, you know, you just start, it's like dropping a marble down a, a sure. sorting deal and like he just kind of rattled through that. And so I think a lot of the guys that end up in the special operations communities, I mean, just the fact that they went into the military is a different sorting process. And they're like, well, I want to be a SEAL. They're just the desire to do that is a, a different deal. But uh, John and I were on the NSW Resiliency Committee for about six years. And then as we've wound down so many of the deployments, we haven't done as many of those gigs. But um, the, the feedback that we got from the guys was just having somebody with some experience like us saying, it's okay to not burn the candle at both ends. It's okay to wait up until the day of deployment, sleep as well as you can, eat as well as you can, and go into that as robust and healthy as you can. And the guys would come back and they're like, yeah, I'm way better this time. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then it's just like, you know, because this is like a movie, right? Sort of like a movie people or whatever, right? It's nutrition talk is, you know, to be honest, over the head of a lot of people, right? So, you know, I have a guy who does jujitsu and, you know, um, eats out six days a week and it's crap. And he's like, hey, what do I do? And if I were to start talking to him like this, like he's like, So do you have any, like, you know, like, where do you start with some of those people? Or do some, some resources that I point them to when they're not just getting ready to get um, I, that, that's, you know, great, great point. I would never recommend that you talk to clients at this level of uh, detail. Um, never, ever, ever. Um, one, you'll have like two people left in your gym and the two people that are left in the gym, all that they're going to do is want to talk about this shit. And you'll never get anything done. So that's, that's a great point. And I, I apologize for not clarifying that before, uh, uh, you know, for us, depending on the person, like it sounds like with, with this guy, my, my deal is always a relationship with these people of like, well, what do you want? And if the guy, this guy is coming to me and he's like, you know, my knees hurt at jits, my shoulders hurt, and I, I, I can never make weight. Um, depending on the relationship I have with them, I'm like, listen, you fat fuck. Like, <laughs> you're paying me money to try to get you somewhere and you're not fucking listening. So where are we at? Either you do what I tell you to do or quit being a bitch and complain. Um, my 35-year-old soccer mom, I probably have a completely different conversation where it's like, hey, hey, listen, you know, um, you're coming to me, you have these concerns, we, you know, but you're really not following through, and we have a relationship here and an obligation, like, you're, you know, you're committed to me, I'm committed to you, but you've got to meet me partway, like, we're only here an hour, three days a week, and then you've got the other 24 hours and the days in between, and you've got to follow this other stuff to make this stuff work, so, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's really, um, making them accountable, sure. you know, and well, yeah. So like, I'll, 
what is it like? This is just something that I kind of came up with. Where, like, when I run into these people, like I'll say to them, like, you have to, like, before you do anything, right? Like, you have to start cooking. Yeah, you know, you can't come to me and be like, should I cut this out and this out and this out and that, this and this and this, and then you're still eating that, you know, not for good. But like, some of that stuff is super overwhelming for you know. Do you have like a, an approach that's like you know just not so yeah, and so on my website, you go to robwolf.com, I, I have a quick start guide there that actually details a, a couple of these different approaches. We have like the all-in, which is like no grains, no legumes, no dairy, you start cooking at home. And, and some of that is just kind of talking to the person, like, so what, what level are you willing to cook some food at home? And they look at you and they're like, I don't know how to boil water. And they're like, okay, so... so and that's that's where you grab like my dining out guide, which here's the places to go. And like so, In and Out is a, a great example. Um, uh, two double meats, protein style. Get a couple of fries. Do you want to eat French fries every day? Probably not. But In and Out is one of the only places I know that doesn't cook any other things in the oil, so it's actually gluten free French fries. Like I can never eat French fries because they always fry everything in that stuff. So I'm at least keeping them gluten free. We're getting some carbohydrate, the vegetable oil. I'll just kind of like, you know, bury my head, not really worry about it too much. But that's going to be a net win versus a soda and the bun and all this other stuff. So, again, it's probably querying that person to figure out where they're at and what, what their minimum buy-in is. And, and oftentimes, like a lot of this is um, what's one meal a day that you could cook at home, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and try to get them doing like one meal a day in and then educate them better about the choices that they could make. Like they run into any supermarket, they get some lunch meat, they get some apples, they get a bag of almonds, good to go. So they, they, I think that that's a, a lot the way you can help them. Yeah, but it's a lot of work. I mean, gymming ain't easy and uh, coaching, <laughs> coaching people is not easy. Like it, you really need to be gratified by um, the process and not re necessarily the result. I'm a little bit more of an engineer in that regard. I really like result-oriented stuff, which is why I was such a dick as coach in the gym, because I, I was really, you know, focused on that. But a, a better balance would be just being uh, very process-oriented and enjoying the relationship that you have with the person, and you're able to engage them and meet them where they are. And you definitely need a, a different different hat that you wear, you know, to, depending on what comes in. Uh, we've asked around this a couple times and you've alluded to it. You guys are, you're obviously getting to tailor uh, eating protocols for people. And you're testing and retesting that using blood. What kind of markers are you looking for in addition to HDL, LDL, triglycerides, glucose levels? Uh, and are there specific numbers that you're looking for that may be out of the range of an ACSM or a generic? Yeah, you, so I'll focus on one specific thing, and that's the LDL particle count. Um, you could go to your doc, and you could have what looks like normal cholesterol, but you actually have high LDL particle count. And so, and to back up a little bit, uh, cholesterol is a substance that our body needs. We can get it from the diet. We, our bodies manufacture it, but they get carried around the body in these things called lipoproteins. So the, the lipoprotein is like a car, the cholesterol is like a passenger. Um, the, it, it doesn't really matter how many passengers there are, the cholesterol, what matters is how many cars there are, the lipoproteins. 
And if you're in an inflamed state, if you're insulin resistant, if you have gut permeability, those lipoprotein counts go up. If you are a shift worker, I guarantee you those lipoprotein counts go up immediately. So the one thing that we, we do for everybody is that we look at this LDL particle count. We have a lot of people, particularly police, military, fire, that have what looks like normal cholesterol levels, but when we look under the hood, they have sky high LDL particle count. And these are the people that suffer a cardiac event at the age of 35. Uh, the flip side, and they call this discordance. Normally particles kind of track with the amount of cholesterol, but when people start getting insulin resistant, particularly from inflammation or sleep deprivation, then their cholesterol levels aren't necessarily super high, but their particle count is really high. There's another type of discordance which isn't super common, but this may be 20% of folks, they look like they have super high cholesterol levels and they, they do by normal like, you know, uh, AMA standards. But when we look at their particle count, it's low. So what they have is a bit, instead of a car, they have a bus for that uh, lipoprotein and it carries a whole lot of cholesterol in it, which is actually very, very good. Um, people who suffer an infectious event or sepsis, if they have low cholesterol levels, they actually tend to die from that infectious event, cholesterol actually acts as part of the innate immune system and helps mitigate viral and bacterial infection. And it plays a role in, in mitigating cancer risk. So there's a, there's a sweet spot in there where you want enough cholesterol and lipoproteins to augment your immune system, but not so much that we're clogging up the, the plumbing due to uh, pro-inflammatory events. So that's one thing that we across the board look at with um, blood work is the LDL particle count. We do look at it relative to like triglyceride HDL ratio, which gives us some insight into their, uh, their insulin sensitivity. We do some pretty jiggy stuff. Like we look at the uh, CBC, the complete blood count and elevated eosinophils, which is a type of white blood cell that is normally allocated for um, parasitic infections. If that is elevated, we know that that person has gluten issues and virtually everybody that we encounter have eosinophil, eosinophil counts that are elevated relative to what they were, say, like in the 1940s and 1950s. This is another really important thing to keep in mind. What's normal is a representation of the population going through the doors of a clinic. Everybody's fucking sick. So sickness is normal. So you, you really want to think about where you do your cutoffs to determine what, what you want to do. Right. So that's why I was kind of going with where you looking at number-wise specifically the sense the more now is sickness, what is it that you're seeing as eating or eating healthy? We, we um, again, it, it depends. You can see a person who has relatively low cholesterol, low lipoproteins, and they're fine. You can have somebody else who has high cholesterol, but moderate lipoprotein level, and they're fine also. Uh, so there's a, definitely a genetic spread on, on that, but it, it's, it's really looking more at the whole picture. It's looking at family history also. You know, if somebody, had, so like with me, two parents have died of uh, type 2 diabetes and cardiac complications, heart disease specifically. We want to keep a tighter look at inflammatory profile, insulin resistance, and, and uh, I've done some uh, uh, CIMTs, carotid intimal media thickness stuff, and all that stuff looks good. So, and, and you know, we get super deep on this. For some people, we look at um, thyroid is one thing that... Uh, uh, the normal range is rather huge, but we, we pull tighter cut points in that um, it, because we think there's a ton of hypothyroidism that's, that's going on. And usually that's driven by, they'll call it adrenal fatigue, but we call it HPTA axis, hypothalamus, pituitary adrenal axis dysregulation. 
traumatic brain injury, sleep deprivation can all feed into that. But then we'll look at the thyroid and maybe we need to put that person on some sort of a thyroid medication for a period of time. More often though, we need to address the sleep food exercise components that are dysregulating the HPTA axis. And then we end up addressing that. But like, I was a great example with that when they first checked my lipoprotein count. Um, normally you want to count this around a thousand. Mine was 2,700, which they were basically like, we're going to inject you with statins right now. And, and I was like, wait, I had a blood test a year ago and this was not, you know, it was a, a fraction of that. I had just gotten off, gotten off my book tour and I also just wrapped up the I Caveman um, Discovery Channel show and I was a wreck. And I looked at my thyroid and I was like, dude, my TSH is high, my uh, reverse T3 is all messed up and everything. So we addressed my adrenals. I didn't go out on the road for a long time, um, got my thyroid normalized. And then when we rechecked, my LDL particle count was 1100. So I cut, and, and theoretically in the literature, you can't get changes like that. But we, we do that type of stuff all the time. But that's what the whole City Zero thing is, is about, is trying to sort people and then use this uh, uh, computer learning, algorithmically driven process to be able to sort people through this and then find a risk assessment and have sleep, food, exercise, gut biome recommendations to try to right the ship and get them going the direction they want. Yeah. Can I uh, tag in on that? Uh, Levi brought up an interesting point. I have a good friend who is uh, a games athlete. She's hypothyroid, so it's treated with Synthroid, but also just recently did a whole bunch of, we, uh, in the wake of Power Athlete doing the genetic tests, she jumped on, did the genetic stuff, was waiting on the results, but just um, did some blood work and found out that her leukocytes, white blood cell count, was extremely low. So I'm wondering if there's a correlation between hypothyroid, leukocyte, uh, white blood count being super low, and her ability to recover from her training. We're talking about mega training sessions here. AM, PM sessions, seven days a week. Does she just seem to be recovering well? Like, is she making progress over time? Does she have sleep disturbances? At this point? I'm sorry? Um, question. I think she's just hypo. Um, treated with Synthroid, but continues to, the dosage on, from the endocrinologist continues to get creep up, creep up, creep up, creep up. And so I'm just curious, her inability or maybe even her level of training, the volume of training that she's on is something that is impacting her white blood cell count, impacting her recovery, if there's any correlation there with the thyroid. Definitely training can negatively impact the thyroid itself. So like if she has any ability to produce thyroid, cortisol antagonizes the production of thyroid, it antagonizes the conversion of T4 into T3. Mm -hmm. And the, I, I forget how, they, they've, it's an anabolic agent, so it's gotta feed into white blood cell count. But I honestly, I'm, I'm guessing about that. Like, I, I don't remember that, that stuff, but I mean, it makes sense and it's cryptic that the dosage is creeping up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I am unable to answer your question truthfully about whether or not it's driving the low, White blood cell count. I, I will say this. What's interesting, though, is that um, if people are generally eating this kind of paleo-esque type diet, their white blood cell counts look low because they're not hyperinflamed. The, you know, all that stuff we were talking about with, with, you know, reducing inflammation. One of the first signs that you see is like they're a significant 15 to 20 percent lower across the board in white blood cell presence relative to the general population because their lack of inflammation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Sure. I'm just trying it, to be, yeah, I mean, it, it, right? definitely. I mean, the, uh, the volume and intensity necessary to compete in the CrossFit games, uh, you know, going back to like the selection process for like the seals, I think you're going to find that the people who succeeded that over the long haul, they have a genotype that is really well accustomed to dealing with a massive amount of volume and they, they just break later. They can yeah. still break, but they break later. And then you'll see the people who are kind of middle ground on that. And you may still be able to find people who can do well, but man, their periodization needs to be spot on. They need to do something like a HRV, heart rate variability testing. And if they got an orange day, it's, it's a foam roll stretch, put on the meditation app versus doing another burner. Yeah. 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 Harry, so um, we've been talking about a lot about genetic composition and uh, something that I'm blessed with is I have older clients that are a little bit more knowledgeable and they stay with us for a while. Um, and now they're hitting the plateau of like, okay, the generic the generic uh, solution that we have for everybody is not working for me. So individualization. You mentioned the 23andMe, which I've done for me and my family. Uh, my son is in the um, spectrum, autism spectrum. Um, is, and then uh, I think John mentioned uh, fitness genes. Fitness genes. Mm -hmm. Before the FDA found out that these people were telling people how to cure themselves and got involved, now that there's all these regulations and those type of testing, is there anything you have that you're like, all right, once you get your genetic composition and your makeup, and once you get your blood work done, and you have all these solutions, those problems that you can actually address earlier. Um, is there any way you look for? I mean, obviously, we don't have the, the resources that you do, but uh, what do you recommend to the average Joe is like looking to address that through genetic decision? To, uh, functional, but you know, before that, I would I would ask, are they sleeping eight to nine hours a night? And and if it's no, then they've got to do that. Are they eating a 100% gluten-free paleo type diet? If not, then you got to do that. Like to me, those are just the gimmies that if there's any variance on that, like that, that's the low hanging fruit. Like that's where we're going to get the most benefit, like just the sleep and really buttoning up the diet. If those things are totally buttoned up and we're still trying to motor forward, um, I would actually look at androgen testing, maybe even before genetic testing, uh, testosterone, you know, total and free testosterone, sex hormone binding globulin, maybe doing a growth hormone analysis, which gets a little bit uh, deeper into things. People, again, who've suffered a traumatic brain injury tend to not produce growth hormone. So I would do more um, androgen testing first versus the genetic testing. And then I might layer on the genetic testing. Um, 23andMe still gives you some good information, but what you can do with 23andMe, you can go to a, a website called Promethease.com and you can, so yeah, and you dump your data into that and then the Promethease, you can go kind of like gene by gene and it, it gives the analysis that 23andMe used to give and it costs like five bucks. Uh, Promethease, like A-S-E, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, SB. It's a uh, so HRV is heart rate variability. It was really deeply studied in like Eastern Bloc Soviet scene, and apparently with astronauts or cosmonauts or what whatnot. And um, the heart beats not at a metronomic pace, you know, like one beat per per minute. 
there's chaos mathematics to it. It speeds up and slows down. And I'm probably going to get this backwards, but if you are well-trained and have an appropriate load of stress in, in your person, while at rest, you have high variability in the heart. And then while in activity, you have low variability in the heart. And when you, the, when you get stressed out or overtrained at rest, you have low variability. And then while under training, you have high variability in the heart rate. So what it tells you is it kind of gives you this sense of what, what's called allostatic load, which is total stress load. And it's kind of slick in that it, it's um, indiscriminate as to what that stressor is. So uh, we'll find that if people eat too much carbohydrate, if they get a gluten dose, their heart rate variability will be negatively impacted. If they do too hard of a workout, their heart rate variability will be negatively impacted. So it's beneficial in that it's giving you an overall stress picture. It's tough and it becomes a little bit of tea leaf reading because you're like, I don't know, okay, so you're red today. What did we do that got you to red? And sometimes you're like, I have no idea. You know, like there, there's nothing super quantifiable in that regards, but it, it's, um, it's, again, it's not a, um, a completely if A then B, there's definitely some interpretation to it. You need to work with a number of people and kind of see some patterns with it for it to really be meaningful, but it gives you some great feedback about like, are you good to go today for a hard training session? Or you can think about like, if you're doing an accumulation block, it's like we had an orange day, orange day, red day. It's like, okay, we'll back off a little bit, get them back down to orange then do another hard training day because we know the next week is going to be a massive curtailment in volume. And that's where we get our super compensation period. So it can really help with like a, a peaking event for sure. And uh, Joel Jameson eight weeks out, like he's had huge success with this, with his um, MMA fighters. And he's, uh, he's super good at interpreting that stuff. And he fought me on the gluten intolerance deal. Like just, just, uh, yeah, epic fight on, on that stuff. We've spoken at a number of different gigs. And I'm like, are you seeing this pop up on HRV? And he's like, yes. <laughs> it, was a, it was a shit fight because he, he just didn't want to acknowledge it. But I'm like, dude, I guarantee you that that's affecting people's HRV. Yeah. Um, and you're talking about, uh, you know, like, adrenal fatigue and all those things. Um, what's like supplementation? Do you think to like, max adrenal from that nutrition at all? I, I love a lot of these adaptogens. Yeah. The, the interesting thing about them, though, is, um, you can't continue living like an asshole and have them fix things. And that's kind of the thing where it's like, are they really helping? Or is it just that you're like, you're, you're see, you know, it'll help, it will buffer. Um, but you, if you've dug yourself into that, like HPCA axis dysregulation, you gotta, you just gotta take a step back or it's just going to augur in worse and worse. And it's a really horrible downward spiral because as you, because as that allostatic load increases, um, your gut becomes more permeable. As your gut becomes more permeable, you absorb nutrients less and you're more pro-inflamed, which means that your thyroid gets dysregulated. And because you're inflamed and insulin resistant, then that's a stress. And that's where I like to say, have you guys ever seen a video of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge? It's this old suspension bridge. So imagine a suspension bridge and the wind would blow over it and it would kind of wiggle a little bit in one day the wind blew over it just right where it got resonance in it and the thing just like exploded. And that's the way I, I kind of, you know, mentally picture folks when they've reached that overload on that, the, you know, the training or the nutrition or whatever, the body will adapt, 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 fail. And the failure is, is, you know, like what we call like stage three adrenal fatigue where the person can't get out of bed. 
Um, they, uh, uh, you know, take some years potentially to recover from that. It's massive overreaching over training. It's not a problem until it's a problem. <laughs> yeah, man, once it's a problem, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, digging yourself back out. And it's not dissimilar from um, heat stroke, where once you've been exposed to it once, your, your likelihood of succumbing to it again is much higher. No, no, you said you were not a big advocate on having like low, sorry, high glycemic carbs for uh, workout. Uh, that's a main, main idea to take. And instead of having like uh, starches or other low glycemic carbs for workout, can you develop that idea? Yeah, it, 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 I was talking to some folks at the break a little bit about this. What I've been playing with is actually doing things more like lentils sweet potatoes that have a longer, more uh, gentle insulin response. And I've been really liking the, the results with that. So we're still say doing 100 or 150 grams of carbs post-workout, but it's just in a form that is not massively spiking blood glucose. Wouldn't that actually spike post-workout in the sense of all the I don't know. I don't know. Like uh, we've been told by mainly the supplement industry that that's definitely what we want to do, but there's only now been some decent um, compare and contrast of doing some low glycemic load carbohydrate post-workout versus the high glycemic load. And it, it's just something that I would throw out there to play with. Like I don't have the right answer with that. And from, from today, what would you guys take away from the low glycemic load versus high glycemic load story. What would your intuition be on that? Probably depends on the person. Yeah. Try it out. Shocker, you know, like <laughs> shocker. It'll probably end up depending on the person, their unique circumstances. Um, but I, I think that it, the one crack in the wall for me with that is that the orthodoxy is that you must do, like if you're not doing high glycemic load, uh, post-workout carbohydrates, that you're really missing out on something. I've seen some great anecdote in the beginnings of some good research that indicates maybe some low glycemic low carbs, not going low carb, but just you know not being so focused on spiking the insulin uh, as, as being the driver with that. And there's some interesting um, studies in amino acids specifically where they did like, uh, so, so protein can be insulinogenic also, like uh, branched chain amino acids, lysine can be very insulinogenic. And there were some studies comparing uh, recovery based off of nitrogen balance, um, uh, high insulinogenic uh, protein intake versus low insulinogenic protein intake, and there really wasn't a difference between them. And that's some of the stuff where I start wondering about that. But again, you know, if we have a CrossFit Games athlete who's doing multiple, it, again, it really depends. So do we have a, a CrossFit Games athlete doing multiple sessions per day, and their muscle glycogen is a critical factor of both their performance and recovery? The central governor is sampling the system, trying to figure out, well, how much glycogen do we have? We have inadequate, so that means we're going to start responding in a stressful fashion versus we have adequate glycogen recovery, and so we're, our allostatic or stress load is going to go down. So again, it becomes really, who are you? What, what, are, we, what are we talking about? So if we had a CrossFit Games athlete doing three sessions a day, we probably want to keep those high glycemic carbs in the mix almost regardless, because we just don't have time to be able to refeed them that quickly. But we, we don't have a ton of folks that, 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 at least that I work with, that train on that. Yeah. Does that help a little bit? Yeah, I'd say I was thinking on, or wondering if there might be any special concerns regarding having, uh, provoking uh, uh, that 
uh, influenced by. I would have huge concern with that, given our dyslipidemic, insulin-resistant, sleep-deprived population. For, for, healthy, for healthy people, of course. I don't know, you know, like healthy person is really nebulous for me these days. Like you, you have a remarkable number of uh, endurance athletes that end up type two diabetic. You know, I mean, and they're lean, but they're motoring along and they're a carbohydrate. Tim notes, I mean, the, the, it's a long list of folks that were high level endurance athletes, like Ironman top 10 finishers, and they're either type two diabetic or they were right on the verge of type two diabetic. And you look at them and they're like, dude, they're as fit as can be, but metabolically they were broken, you know, under the hood. And, and that kind of goes back to what our last guest on the podcast, Dr. Willie had to say is like, just cause you look healthy, doesn't mean you are healthy. And uh, you know, a lot of his approach was looking under the hood to see, all right, regardless of body composition, let's see how his whole, system of tests is is reacting with you and then he he makes those changes and it may not be a body composition deal it may be a performance deal or well he and he was interesting in that he works in pro bodybuilders so i mean by far the most unhealthy population on the world just from the mere fact of the drugs and like what they do and actually it's not necessarily the drugs because the you know, power lifters and other athletes take those too but it's actually the bulking and the meaning the working themselves down to three four percent body fat the you know water depletion and we talked offline it's like that's what's really killing these guys is uh the diuretics and that kind of deal but going back to rob's thing on the, the carbohydrates is um uh, it's, it's a totally shot in the barrel unless you have glucose meter. And um, I know Rob and I talked about this years ago, but Tom Inkwood on the show will get into this a lot. You should ask him that question. I mean, Jimmy yeah. yeah. So he, he gave me, uh, uh, when I went to him, he said, hey, I want you to get this glucose meter. I want you to test it first thing in the morning, and I want you to test it uh, 15 minutes after each meal. And I want you to get a baseline on how things react to you. And if you can keep your blood sugar under 80, you will never gain an ounce of fat. And I was like, all right. So I, I remember... Uh, we were, you know, you guys were talking about, um, uh, you know, um, slow versus fast-acting carbohydrates. Um, white rice spiked me through the roof. Sweet potatoes put me through. Otargo did not spike me as much mm -hmm. as, uh, as as a white potato. So, so people don't really know what necessarily spikes them. They just have these, like, arbitrary, like, oh, these are fast-acting carbs, or these are high glycemic carbs, based on somebody else's observation. And we already know that the glycemic and, index. And that goes back to this cell paper, which I'll, I'll uh, John remind me, and I'll forward it to him, and then he'll forward it on to all you guys. Okay, like, it was fascinating, because there was just no consistency, like, uh, uh, things that you would assume were very high glycemic index. Not everybody responded in a high glycemic index and response format and things that you would guarantee were low glycemic index and insulin load. Other people, they just went off the Richter on it. And then uh, Tom gave me a whole battery of different things that I could combine with meals to make sure that what you're going to go to. Like for me, it was cinnamon, alpha-lipoic acid. Uh, there was a couple things that I could do, uh, you know, um, and the, uh, you know, we got to the point where I was testing it all the time and I came with this baseline, which was interesting, was I was always high blood sugar in the morning. So when I first woke up, I was really high. As soon as I ate, my blood sugar would go down like 30 points. And then the rest of the day, my blood sugar was always under 85, 90. And even when I ate, it really never went up that high. But first thing in the morning, I was always high. And uh, part of the reason probably was uh, either some sleep apnea or something was affecting my sleep. So I was always in a inflamed state. But going back to what you were asking about it, like how high are the, uh, the spikes and what's really good? We know anything over 140. Um, you know, uh, starts having cellular de degeneration. And you guys have all heard me tell the story about the kid who with the chocolate cake. And, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, it, you know both of his parents, you know, his aunt was blind in one eye. And, you know, I'm looking at his blood sugar, it's 137. And, you know, anything over 140 is had optical or degeneration of the optical nerves. So think about 
uh, every time you go in, you hit something, it goes 140, even though it's doing this all day. You know, I mean, is it causing some form of problem? And then are you getting into some form of inflammation? And the other thing that I really focus on too, especially with carbohydrates, is uh, cut coke. I, and that is the weirdest thing to me. And I always think like, if I'm eating something and it's bloating me out to the point where I'm like, Ooh, I feel like I got a waddle everywhere, that's a problem. And I know that that's causing something within me. And so when we get into this whole kind of carbohydrate, like what's good, I'm always like, you know, what doesn't like, if I can sit down and eat 70, 100 grams of carbohydrate and I feel fine, I'm good. If I eat 75 grams of carbohydrate and I feel gut bloat, like we ate that Mexican food yesterday and I was so bloated. <laughs> but yet I can take 75 grams of Targo, white rice. Um, we found this like quinoa that's mixed with uh, like rice, kind of cream of rice and uh, works really well. And so I started kind of playing and looking at different things. And um, that goes back to my other favorite question, what about quinoa? And uh, we get that one all the way. And uh, I'm going to go with Fisher. Fisher had probably the best line I've ever heard, which is uh, somebody asked him, or one of our guys asked him about mushrooms. And he said, uh, I've never seen anybody obese from a diet of just mushrooms. <laughs> you're okay. And he said it, and I was like, Bing, that's going in the seminar. But, um, you know, it, it's like, uh, you know, if somebody's asking about quinoa and that's what they want to do, I mean, at the end of the day, like, if you substitute quinoa in, is everybody going to be inflammatory? I don't know. I mean, that's that's kind of how you fit it. You eat it, and then you get terrible gut load. Like, I don't have any problem with oatmeal. My wife eats oatmeal, and all of a sudden she's like, oh my God, my hands are swollen, I have problems. So I think, you know, uh, it goes back, but I think if, um, and you guys should ask Inky about it when he comes in, the blood testing thing is one of the most interesting things to see how things react to you. And Rob made a good point about, um, you know, protein being extremely insulogenic. Uh, I knew that when I ate upwards of 100 grams of protein, my insulin would go through the roof. So, um, you know, I mean, that's a lot of food, but is that from the protein or the fact that your gut expands? Because Which also feeds it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another thing, um, you have taste buds. So if, even if you said something sweet, does that carbohydrate, what happens? What's your inside? So gut stretch, tasting something sweeter. So, I mean, there's other ways. That's why I meet people all the time. Like, I drink diet soda, but yet I'm still having problems and I'm in a diabetic issue. And you're like, well, yeah, so you're constantly flood, flooding yourself with sweet things, and your body's way sharper than we get the credit for. But that overextension, and uh, those of you guys that are trying to bulk, actually, you have to eat to the point of stomach extension because that's, I mean, you know, that was one of our uh, little things when, you know, we looked at like, um, is it easier to eat like six or seven different meals or eat like three or four bigger meals? And we actually found that three or four bigger meals were better for the bulk because you almost got that stomach extension if you're doing healthy than some others. So, Ingo. So I got a, it's a two-part question. Um, I have a, well, I don't make cars or what so I'm not a strength guy. But I have a theory in that uh, we should feed our kids like we feed athletes in that just like an athlete, they're in a constant state of uh, rebuilding and adaptation. Is that true? And also the second part is, aside from the, the uh, overarching parameter, non-planetary food, whole nutrient dense whole foods, other considerations you should have with the Man, um, I mean, one, I think our genetic norm is that we're all athletes. Like we're genetic, you know, the geno phenotypic norm for humans is to be very, very active. So I, I, and I, I think all kinds of good things happen when we uh, have an aerobic base and we, we, we exercise, and, you know, all that type of stuff. So I, I think all of us, should be eating a nutrient-dense diet, you know, that, that uh, supports that process. Um, I mean, the demands for kids are not really too much different than us, other than, you know, clearly they're growing, they're growing at, at a accelerated rate. Um, 
I, I don't know. Like, I, I would say that it's even more important to try to mitigate gut irritants in kids for a host of reasons. Um, I know. Wait, well, wait, uh, so I always think about kids who are in this positive nature, uh, you know, positive nature of retention, this idea of constant growth, uh, you know, which is what we all strive for for putting our muscle. And, yeah, I mean, obviously, they're going to need, you know, some form of protein. I think any kid that's eating a diet that lacks protein is going to be, you know, left behind. I mean, I, um, I read a pretty interesting book called uh, Deep Nutrition, and they talked about, um, you know, kids, you know, jaws forming and, uh, you know, teeth and a lot of these things. And so you look at, like, you know, and, you know you're bringing in some form of saturated fat, whether it be, you know, uh, you know bone or you know, something really nutrient-dense like that. Because uh, you think about it, if you look at standard diets for most kids, what do they eat? It's usually uh, low fat, um, low to moderate protein, and then super high carb. And it's usually very, very sugary carbs. You know, dino nuggets and it's gluten. And, you know, this is what I want. And anybody that's ever been on an airplane with, uh, with a bunch of kids who've been to Disneyland <laughs> knows what high dose sugar does to kids. <laughs> I was on an airplane and I was sitting there, you know, and we have the luxury or dis-luxury of traveling, if that's even a word, um, sitting there. And this lady is... Uh, feeding her kids uh, a Starburst. Like this little kid, two years old, like, okay, if you're good, I'll give you another Starburst. And this kid's gobbling Starburst. And like, and then it was like, Here, here's a Coke. And the kid's like slamming this Coke. And I'm sitting there watching this. I'm like, God, Starburst and Coke for two-year-old? <laughs> good luck. This is going to be epic. <laughs> we get on the plane and the kid's like four seats ahead of me. And all of a sudden he gets on and I'm, I see him like ball up his little fist as he's standing on the seat. And it's like, ah! And he's literally screaming. So what does the mom do? Gives him another Starburst. This kid screamed nonstop for four hours. And like, I wanted to go over and like choke the parents. And like, it, it happens to us, like uh, Halloween, we take our kids out trick-or-treating and my wife is like the, uh, like, like the candy governor. She like takes everything and like doles them out. We like, you know, uh, M&Ms and a couple little things. And dude, I'm not kidding you. We, we don't feed our kids much sugar. Like they absolutely melted down. Every kid that was in this panic, like, you know, because it's like they just aren't absorbed to it and uh, or really affected. So I think, um, you know, and, you know, you got to limit that. But uh, at the end of the day, the kids should eat what the parents eat. And, I, and this kills me all the time. Like, you know, we have this dope meal and all of a sudden the you know, mom's over there cooking up like fish sticks, dino nuggets, and like, here's a bunch of ketchup. And, uh, you know, like that doesn't, you know, deal. we have a deal in our house, like we cook and if you don't want to eat your food, that's fine. You can go to bed and you'll wake up hungry and you'll eat at some point. Um, when it's just this, you know, there's some, you know, some treats that you can't be complete weirdos. Like you got to like give them some ice cream and a couple things, but I think for those kids and we're informing and it's even more important. And then like Tom said, you said, or uh, Rob said, sitting in the, uh, that gut environment, which I think most parents don't realize how badly they mess up their kids' guts with antibiotics. And the other one is, is constantly washing their hands. Have you ever seen moms are covering their kids in Purell? And I'm like, dude, uh, I got mad at my wife. I'm like, don't like, let them go out and eat the dirt. Like let them play, like, you know, like let them go out. I want them exposed to this stuff. So I mean, my kids are like rolling around on the dog pillows with the dogs licking their faces and I'm like, good. Uh, but also, you know, I mean, I know it's kind of weird because kids are you know, constantly hands in their nose and their face, but, um, you know, allowing that stuff. And then really the antibiotics. I know uh, we really got to tweet all of this through Chris Cresser because our, both our girls were, were breeding for the C-section babies. And um, you guys have listened to Chris or, you know, different other people really, as the baby comes through the birth canal, that's really their first uh, experience to bacteria. And actually the bacteria that they get for their gut is custom designed for them as they enter, as they leave the birth canal. So children that are born uh, C-section don't have that opportunity. So um, we knew that there was no way the girls were going to flip. So I hit up Chris Presser and he sent us some high-dose antibiotics. 
and we were in the hospital. Imagine the doctor flipping out as I'm like trying to shovel this stuff in my like one one day old baby's mouth. And um, we really worked like the only, I think we've only given them antibiotics maybe once or twice, just trying to, you know, almost like this feel like we got to try to make up for it. But even fermented foods and try to offer them some different things, whether it's sauerkraut, uh, kombucha, uh, we fed them a fermented, uh, um, it's the, the goat milk, it's the mm. kefir. So we fed them kefir, like, you know, uh, after the breast milk for a year and just really trying to work for it. But really what I think it goes back to is um, the kids aren't any different than you. If you would need it, then I wouldn't feed it to them. Like, I don't want to eat diamond nuggets and fish sticks and a bunch of other crap, um, you know. And, and then, um, you know, the other one, too, is uh, we lied to our kids really bad. <laughs> and they're going to hate me when I'm older. But I'm like, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, they, I don't know what that is. They're probably allergic to it. You know, and they see kids eating cokes and all these other foods, and like they were like really excited. These kids had these uh, snackable, lunchable, you know, things where you peel open, and it's all prepackaged stuff. I'm like, uh, it's all gluten. So they like assume gluten is like this boogeyman. It's gonna. <laughs> well done. But uh, my daughter actually got a uh, uh, somewhere either ate something, and uh, this is a terrible story because parents, you guys will laugh. So she's in the bathroom, and it sounds like she's a college kid that's been eating beer and pizza for a week. And she like yells at her sister to like come hold my hand. This is really hurting. And so her sister's in there holding her hand, going, uh, "Don't worry, we'll get through this." And I'm literally sitting outside the door, laughing hysterically, trying to video it, like trying to record it, because you know she's three years old and she's got her sister in there. And then it come out, she's like, "Hey, gluten stuff, bro. That's food." Cool. Uh, so they assume that gluten is like the equals, devil. Yeah, it's the devil. It's bad food. And at some point, they're going to figure it out. But I mean, really, the um, uh, you know, uh, like having kind of gone down this, like, uh, you know, epigenetics is really like what your grandparents, if your grandparents were immigrants, strong, hearty people, you got a good chance to get through this stuff. But you start looking at like, you know, genetic adaptation and really what kind of gene expression, uh, a lot of that stuff gets sent to about six years old, that first six being such an important year. So I feel if I can lie to them and like feed them what I really want up into the age of six, like at some point, like if I can safeguard that, I feel like as a father, I've really done my, my deal and then my other responsibility that Rob and I talk about as a father is with Chris Rossi. Got to keep him out of the hole. <laughs> <laughs> so, any others? Ingo, did that answer? Yes, thank you. Okay, good. Uh, I'd like to get into. Uh, no, 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 sorry, sorry. You have something to do with anything you might have sponsoring for. Uh, just wondering if you were thinking on, on reducing any kind of transportation or nutrition courses. <laughs> I've been working on it for four years, yeah. so this city zero game. It, it was actually supposed to be a three-month project yeah. four years ago, and I was like, hey, what, what about that? Yeah. So, um, so I was working on ACERT, uh, kind of like my, my view on this stuff, evolutionary medicine. It was going to be credentialed through... Um, the Evo Society, Evolutionary Studies Society through the State University of New York, uh, SUNY. And then I ended up in Reno. And it, it, have you guys heard the, the Reno risk assessment story? Not that many people. Okay, so I ended up in Reno. Real, really quick story with it. Um, these guys had found um, 35 police and firefighters at high risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, put these guys on a paleo diet, modified their sleep as best they could, got them exercising better. And based off their blood work changes and their health risk parameters, it's estimated that this pilot study saved the city of Reno $22 million and a 33 to 1 return on investment. So I was trying to figure out how to scale this brick and mortar clinic to be able to accommodate folks. Like I did a few blog posts on this, and we had a company, an oil company in Qatar, 
that the three chief medical officers that oversee the 32,000 employees out in the oil field, these guys are totally into paleo, totally into John's work and everything. They wanted to send us 32,000 people to work with remotely. This brick and mortar clinic has a technology infrastructure that would have been cutting edge in 1985. So we're completely unable to accommodate this stuff. We had New York Police Department, 24,000 employees want to use this. Again, we, we couldn't scale this thing. So I was trying to polish this third, polish this third, and then finally I realized that what we needed to do was create a technology company that could algorithmically sort and process the information that we had learned in the clinic use that intellectual property and build a technology interface that we could put 100,000 people a day through it. So that's what I've been doing. We're very, very close to our seed funding round and we will have a certification that will encompass fitness professionals, allied healthcare providers and physicians on one side. So we're building a provider network on one side and then the blood work and analysis on the other side. And the goal with this thing, like currently when people get blood work, you're typically more confused after the blood work than before. When you get the blood work through this thing, if we have not shipped the bed on it, you will go through the process, you'll go through the online modules that tell you what's going on, and you will actually be well informed on this, and you don't need to call me or call John or somebody to be able to interpret this. Or conversely, your, your clients won't be shaking you down and like, what does this all mean? Like they will understand and they'll have actionable material related to sleep, food, exercise, gut biome that they can do to you know, take them, who are they, what do they want to do? So that's what I've been doing for four years and we're like this close to getting it done. So, it, so the, the whole thing, when I, when I discovered this risk assessment program in Reno, I realized that um, it was, the CERT was really important, but what we need is a system, not just a CERT. So yeah. we need to provide like consistently what we find out, there's all kinds of people that are outside the parameters of wellness monitoring and they're in a disease management state and they need a gym and they need a doctor that they can be referred to that the, the gym and the doctor are not going to drop the ball on this. And I think that that was our big, you know, when, geez, we were in Lutheran when we started talking about this, we were on that trip to Bahamas, uh, I sent you a picture of yesterday, it's funny. Uh, so we, we sit down and, and Rob made a great point. He said, you know, like, um, you know, we understand one model in terms of, let's say, like a CrossFit gym, somebody walks through your door and what's the standard protocol you're going to put them through? You know, hey, how are you? Are you healthy individual? You, you walked in here, great. Let's go three, two, one, you know, 10 rounds a city and see how you do it. And that's really the model we've been taught. But unfortunately, what if, uh, you know, a doctor or provider sends this person to you and says, hey, you know, this person has X, Y, and Z long, and, you know, this is what we're doing with them. We need to introduce them to fitness, to, a, you know, whether or not, you know, you define fitness. I mean, uh, I think I've researched and I found well over 100 definitions of fitness. Every, every, PhD that's ever written anything within the performance uh, health field has actually started with their own definition of fitness. So if anybody tells you that nobody defined fitness, it's, it's crazy. Uh, it was defined within it, this idea of, you know, your ability to go out into the world and live your life in a manner that's both, you know, uh, to do what you want, not, you know, confined. So based on that, you know, basically getting people to fitness and helping them evolve into a person that's able, healthy, strong, be able to play with their kids and do all these things along, live a long, healthy, healthy life. Uh, if they have all these, you know, cards stacked against them that Rob's able to kind of assess with all this uh, risk assessment and brings them in and sends them to the gym, that's good information for you to have. And more importantly, do you guys show hands? Do you feel comfortable working with those individuals? 
Yeah, you guys do. And, and it's because why? You know, we teach this idea of like it's all progression. You bring them in day one, what do we do? We assess, right? We put them through a battery of test assessments. You just don't fucking toss them into the flame. I mean, you know, we, we did. I, I know Rob did. And back in the day in 2007, 2008, we'd fucking come in, three, two, one, fuck you, let's go. We can torture people. But what happens? You know, I, I had a guy that had AFib that didn't tell me. I put him on kettlebell swings, and all of a sudden he shows me his watch that has his heart rate monitor, and he's at like a 220, and the guy's 60 years old. And I, I didn't know if I should like push him outside, shut the door, and run, <laughs> like hug him. I didn't know what to do. And at that point, I realized that, you know, if somebody walks through your door, I mean, you know, our, our three P's when we talk about coach responsibility, what is it? Your number one, do no harm. Say Hippocratic Oath, you know, do no harm. So as individuals, you know, we are in a position, you know, owning a gym, doing this, to do harm if not applied correctly. And so, uh, you know, it would be nice to actually have these people come through your door recommended, whereas you got an email or an information being like, hey, this is what this person, these are the problems they have, and you feel comfortable dealing with them. You know, they're working with this individual for their health and nutrition. This is what we need for them. And, you know, Harry, I'll keep looking at you, but, you know, you're great working with these special populations, bringing people in, you know, day one, what can we do today? I mean, my very first client was five, six, 310 pounds. You know, I've been a, a terrible overeater, had all these problems. And we bring her in and day one, her, her workout looked like uh, banded, pulled like face pulls, uh, five step ups on a box and like 25 meter row. I mean, and like, that's where she started. And she did it three times and was literally had to go out in the car and sit with the ACR for 20 minutes. You know, so I mean, how do you scale this thing? And I think like, you know, it's it, it's not always about increasing human performance, but I think that's the stuff we geek on on. It's actually helping people to live the life that we, you know, that they need to live to, so that they're healthy people. Or, you know, I mean, uh, let me throw something in on that. I, I've been kicking this term around called, uh, or it is the gym as primary care medicine. The doc in the box isn't primary care medicine. The doc in the box is when we have fucked something up and we miss something, or you get hit by a bus, or you know, you, you get something that you need antibiotics for. But what do we get in the gym? We potentially get education on sleep, food, exercise, and we get community. And those are all the things that we need to be effective as human beings. And this is, you know, there's been drama around like some of my commentary about the way that gyms need to be run. But the reason why I fucking care about it is every gym that fails is a hub of benefit that ceases to exist. These gyms can and will save people's lives. So I'm pretty motivated to try to see people succeed in this process because I don't think we need the doc in the box. I don't think we need the healthcare system. I think we need a decentralized food production system that networks into gyms so that if oil goes to $300 a barrel, we're, we're not completely screwed because our, our, our normal systems are all fucked up. You know, like it, this is a contiguous, decentralized, difficult to destroy system that you guys are basically at the front lines of that. And that's why I'm incredibly passionate about trying to see you guys succeed on the business side, on the nutrition side, on the coaching side, because I think that you will save more lives than any doctor firefighter, priest, rabbi, or, you know, what have you, you guys are going to affect a remarkable number of people. So that's why I'm really passionate about that. We have a, we have a responsibility uh, to surround ourselves with people that are better than us. In my case, I have uh, a massage therapist, I have a chiropractor that not only they know my business and my people, but they know my vision and what we strive for. So when I send somebody to get, hey, you know, I can't have a tweak and like, hey, go see this thing. Well, I have my own chiropractor. I'm like, well, you're missing a whole pie because you go to my guy, my guy assess you and gives you a, a, a protocol, and then he calls us like I saw so and so, 
and uh, this is what I need you to do for me. Because I don't have the knowledge base that he has at 25 years experience in the Well, there, I mean, there's um, a problem we run into, and, and really what kind of ran me down this road was, uh, you know, obviously playing the NFL, there's a lot of injuries. And every time that we got injured, it was either uh, a pill or a surgery. And I'm thinking to myself, there has to be something else. And that actually, you guys can wave and say, Dr. Tom's in the back. My good friend Tom Inkledon just walked in. Uh, and actually led me to meet Dr. Inkledon. And, uh, you know, Tom being like, no, 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 that's all bullshit. You know, and uh, Tom was actually in med school and left to go be a research scientist because he realized that the side of research was where he was going to help athletes. And then just learning what somebody else was regurgitating within a medical book, which was, uh, you know, surgery or a pill, which to me is just like, hey, I'm either going to uh, replace your part I'm going to put, uh, you know, electrical tape over the check engine light. Uh, had to be, you know, had to, you know, be this. And, and you know, Tom is, uh, you know, has such a clinical background of, like, having worked with people that they were like, I write this person off, they're going to die in a week. And Tom's like, awesome, we can really figure this stuff out. And, you know, I'm sure he'll get into it a lot more. But really, I, and it took me down that road. And even at, like, my darkest moment, uh, you know, where I thought my whole world was coming to an end with a shoulder and a knee, and I called Tom, and he's like, you know, I know this guy. Get him a point this guy. We went and visited Dr. Bueller up in Utah, and I walked out of Dr. Bueller's office, and uh, it was as if somebody gave me my life back. Like, I was like, they, they told me I need a shoulder replacement, a knee replacement. I went and I saw Bueller, and um, you know, he was a real interesting guy. I mean, he's in Tim Ferriss's four hour body book, and they call him Dr. Two Fingers. Just um, uh, what he does is a different type of deal. I don't even can't explain it for those of you who have seen him. And uh, I literally walked out of there and, and as I was walking out, the only thing I thought to myself is I could run through that car. I could go back to play today if I had met him years before. And, you know, but I, I really believe that everything happens in your life for a reason. And even though I wouldn't say I'm a religious person, I'm a spiritual person, I don't believe this stuff's a big guy. And, uh, you know, you meet people at the right time. And, uh, you know, thank God I did meet him earlier because I would still be playing in the NFL. And then, and then, and then what would I be doing? <laughs> I mean, that's and, the, that's and, the real and question. And my poor friend Rob Wolf would be like, uh, John's drooling a lot to piss in the head. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it's a scary thing for me because, I mean, you know, my good friend Kyle Turley, who, you know, lives out of Riverside, comes and visits us, and you know, he's had a lot of problems and played as long as I had. And as we sat down and started looking at some of the things that I did versus what he did, uh, he didn't go see a Dr. Tom. He didn't, you know, start eating gluten-free diet because Dr. Tom did his, uh, uh, you know, food analysis and told me I was allergic to gluten, uh, corn, and uh, soy, and a few other things. And I just cut those out of my diet. I remember asking Tom, I'm like, so if I just eat all the green foods and all the red foods, I'll be fine? He's like, yeah, it's easy. And he gave me a whole list, and I just ate those foods. And then next year, I was uh, bigger, stronger, and more jacked. And I called him back. I was like, dude, I dropped like 5 6% body fat in my list with gluten root. And Tom's like, reduce inflammation, buddy. Let's go. And so, like, it's not that complicated, but I remember talking to guys in the NFL about it and them fighting me, still to this day. You know, I mean, when I uh, went and saw Dr. Amen and uh, at the end of my NFL career and they assessed me with some brain damage, which actually they assessed my ability to uh, sympathy and empathy as being zero, which now I realize is our genetic trait, but <laughs> the part of my brain that was damaged uh, on my left frontal lobe, um, you know, I, I leave that place and I'm pretty upset. I'm like, dude, I got brain damage and I call Matt Malone. Dr. Lawn, organic chemistry a professor at Harvard, and I tell him, and Lawn's like, let me work on this. I'll call you back. So he, he like wrangles up all of his monkeys, and they pull 10,000 research studies. And he literally three days later calls me back, and I'm like, what? I was going to get a call back? He's like, no, no, no. I had all my guys go through it, and uh, there was a bunch of great information about ketogenic diets in terms of uh, how to re you know, help brain and you know, uh, acute versus chronic brain injury. And he's like, ketogenic diet. 
all right, let's go. Well, I was like, I was already familiar with that through Mario Data as well. And it was easy to switch, but then for a year I didn't need any carbs. And, um, you know, it really was pretty damn hard. I went and visited Rob at the end of the year. And I remember Rob was like, let's go get some sweet potatoes. I think you're good. And sure enough, we like cooked up all the sweet potatoes. So I'm like, laid back and was like, somebody wrapped me in a warm <laughs> And I woke up and I drove home and I felt way better. But I think, um, you know, the network of people that you create, you know, whether it's a Rob, Matt Lawler, Dr. Tom, I mean, Dr. Mueller, all these people, is uh, an incredible network that I feel blessed to have access to. And I think the problem is, is uh, most people are so stuck in this conventional dogma of like, well, you're gonna go see the doctor and he's gonna give you this and you need surgery and all this. And I, I got to the point where I was like, you guys have already cut on me enough to more work it didn't make me better. You giving me, um, like I broke my leg, uh, first game of the season against Tennessee, uh, shattered my fibula clean in half, and uh, they casted me five days, and I played three weeks later. They told me I didn't need that bone to play football because it was only 12% weight-bearing bone. So I'm out there playing on a broken leg, and I can feel it moving with every step, and so the doctor just started giving me more and more painkillers. He's like, well, I'll just give you something else to pick you up. And I was like, so now we're just masking more and more problems. Would it be the problem is that I'm playing on a broken leg and I ended up going and you know, playing 17 weeks on a broken leg and um, was on John Mann's horse trailer for Monday Night Football for uh, beating up Warren South. And um, there's a fat piece of shit. You can put that on if you can. So, hey, but I mean, that's... Uh, Shots uh, fired. You know, that's, you know, but but that I think is, is the big problem is that people are stuck in this conventional dogma, and I really would, what I'm so proud of Rob and what Dr. Tom and these guys are doing, is they are fighting conventional dogma, just like we're fighting conventional fitness and, and, and ideas. And we're putting out good training, opposed from just a bunch of bullshit. And like, you know, if you guys see it, you know, the internet's fraught You know, if you do a search, I mean, everybody's an expert, and there's just not that many experts. And uh, even though everybody with the blog is, so I think at the end of the day, um, you know, I mean, I, I always laugh like everybody was, you know, kind of like, oh, I didn't know much about this paleo, and then Rob comes out, and then everybody was a paleo expert. And I'm like, dude, I was everybody an expert on this? Because Rob started a podcast. Because, because Rob started a podcast. And the funny thing is, I know nothing, and it seems to be decreasing. <laughs> like, the, have you guys seen very many definitive answers? Like, what's the one definitive answer today? You got to sleep all the time. That's the only takeaway. Sleep more. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, and really everything, you know, and, and I, I think the problem we run into is everybody wants a definitive answer. So if I follow this, this will happen. And like, it's this kind of level of, of uh, for surety, you know, like, okay, well, you know, I'm putting my trust in has to come. And we know that, you know, it just doesn't work like that. Like we had a, you know, we, we've been doing some nutrition stuff and uh, we had a guy that was like, uh, where's the diet where I can go out and booze with my buddies five nights a week, but I don't want to drink on the weekends. Oh, and it has to be keto. But it has to be a ketogenic diet. <laughs> and I was like, well, how many drinks? He's like, I don't know, like three or four pitchers of beer and maybe like five or six cocktails. And I'm like, well, well that's the alcoholic <laughs> so what you got to do is you got to drink enough to where you throw up all the next day, have one meal and then get back in the fight. But he also what he wanted to like drop five to six percent body fat. And then, I mean, he was like, I was like, hey, I know what that diet's called. It's called candy left. My kids are playing that game right now. I'll send over some, you know, it's like, uh, you know, and I read this stuff and I'm like, I'm scratch my head a little bit. And I'm like, uh, like, let's book a consult just because I want to meet this guy. And I'm like, hey, you know what? Like, I'm, I'm going to give you a big dose of reality. And it's, um, you know, like. You can't have your cake and eat it too, but you can you know, work around to have everything kind of work if you want to make some sacrifice. You know, there's a very, very small percentage of the population that can do whatever they want, and they will still jump 60 inches and fucking run a 4-2-3, and I played the NFL with those guys. 
the guy that literally ate chicken McNuggets and dipped them in salt and drank Diet Coke and was still 4% mindset. But that was in his 20s. What does he look like in his 40s or his 50s? If he makes it. If he makes it. Right? I mean, it, so, uh, you know, it's it's become this um, interesting thing. And, and the reason why I remember sitting with Rob talking about this risk assessment deal, why it was so impactful. And, uh, you know, we talk almost every week about this for years is because here's an opportunity to really flip the paradigm on its side and provide something to being like, you don't have to go to the, to the standard healthcare provider kind of bullshit. And with all this you know, Obamacare stuff, I mean, it's even more. I mean, my deductible is now like $5,000 and there's like four people in the deal and insurance. I mean, it's becoming more and more important. Like, like the idea of like, everybody should have the right to have insurance. I'm not denying that. But the problem is, is when you add that many more people into the pool, but you don't add a single doctor, you don't increase hospitals, and you don't do anything to regulate the insurance industry, you can't have that. You Basically, what you have to do is you have to throw up a sign and say, you know what, we're going to need 30% more doctors to pick up our 50% more people. I need to regulate insurance company, uh, insurance care providers. We need to regulate all this, and we need to build hospitals and have all this. If we're going to be in standardized healthcare with people that have no concept of health, fitness, or more importantly, or more obligation to not weigh down the system. How can we do it? You can't. It's a broken system from day one, and everybody should have the right to health care. But it's like, uh, if you don't create infrastructure for it, how does it exist? It doesn't. And it's become uh, this terrible deal. We've, we've been trying to go through it. I mean, our health care provider went out of business. They just picked up shops yeah. and we're, we're not doing it. We're done with that. We're done. And so, like, now we're like, uh, now what do we do? So then we're having to go out and look for stuff. And then it's like all these people to the point where you just, let me get the cheapest one. And I'll just pay cash. Let's go make a cash deal. And that's what we're going to turn into is just a cash deal society. You basically pay the healthcare so that, or you take the fine, or you get the catastrophic where it's like a $25,000 deductible and you pay the minimum and then you just go out and you pay cash or you hope to God you never get sick, right? Which is us, right? Because I'd rather pay, you know, like the reason we come train and we do all this stuff is like, I've been sick in years. My kids don't get really get sick. You know, I mean, it's, it's really, you know, my wife's having a baby, so we got to, you know, have some healthcare. But that becomes the deal, like these gyms and what the information we're teaching here is like, if you're depending on somebody to come save you, nobody's coming. And I wrote a talk to Johnny about that, where I'm like, you know, everybody thinks that like somebody's going to be there to do their, their net fall, and nobody's fucking there. The doctor's not going to be there. Um, like I, you know, um, just a small tangent, but uh, my dad had a TIA, which is a temporal and, you know, yeah, right. So my dad had a deal and uh, had a TIA and they thought he was going to stroke or they thought he stroked out at work. They take him to the hospital and he's in bed and the, the nurse walks in and is like, you know, your father had a stroke and, uh, you know, bleed. We thought he was going to die. And so we're sitting there with my dad holding his hand and about, a, you know, about six hours later, he comes out of it and he's like kind of normal. He's like, I don't know what happened. I got groggy and then I was hit his head real bad. And so what do they do? They scan him. They do everything. They look at him. He's in the hospital one day, they release him, nothing wrong with you, you can't figure it out. So what happens? The doctor's like, you look healthy, might be just something weird, sends him back out. Doesn't make any changes, nothing. Three months of the day, the exact same thing happens. And this time, he's dead. And I go in, about six hours later, he wakes up, everything's fine. I looked at him, he's like, what are you thinking? I'm like, you're fucking over this in these moments. So I go pick him up in the car. And I drive him out to Arizona to go see Tom to get all his blood work done because we got to figure this thing out. And so we're, we stop at a truck stop, we're filling up with gas, and my dad's like, I'm going to grab a water or a coffee or something. So he comes out with the coffee, and like we're in the car, and uh, I go for a bump, and he spills the coffee on me, and I was like, oh, it's not like coffee. It's fucking hot chocolate. And I like look at him, 
and I like snatch the hot chocolate out of his hand, and as I do it, a raspberry Danish falls out of his jacket. Mind you, I woke up at three in the morning to drive into Arizona so that we could get blood work fasted, right? So my dad has a sweet tooth, and uh, so I grab the shit, I pull over, and I throw the shit out, and I'm literally yelling at him. Like uh, a father, a son should never yell at his father. And he's like, I can't believe you talked to me. And I'm like, I had to wake up at three in the morning to drive your ass over here six hours to go get blood work because mom, you know, you, you almost died twice. I mean, literally, I'd sit in the hospital and talk to my mom about, you know, dad's will and all this and my brothers. So we drive over and uh, Tom starts going through his history, takes all the blood and um, he goes through, he's like, take any medications? He's like, yeah, the doctor uh, told me I had low testosterone. So he prescribed me this uh, testosterone for rebel moms. And I was like, oh. Really, how can you tell me that? He's like, well, I didn't think it was a big deal. He's like, well, everything's a big deal. So we get the blood work back and uh, zero testosterone in his body. So for a guy taking testosterone, that's zero in his body. So Tom looks at him and goes, you're taking testosterone, you have no testosterone in your body. So what happened is, is because my dad doesn't sleep enough, he's all overweight, uh, doesn't eat right, doesn't exercise nearly as much as he should. Uh, all that testosterone he was taking was aromatizing into estrogen. What happens when estrogen gets high? It thickens your blood and blood tends to clot. And those deals, basically, the blood was clotting and he was getting this TIAs and stroke. And literally, that, and here was the thing when I asked him about the doctor, I was like, the doctor prescribed it. Did he ever bring me back and do a follow up blood test to, to see if, how you've been doing? Because if he had tested you, you know you didn't have any testosterone and uh, would either give you some Rimidex or uh, uh, something to, to you know, uh, block estrogen. No, never brought him back for a follow up. Gave him this drug and then didn't bring him back to uh, do any form of blood testing, which is the, you know, the classic HRT. You basically assess somebody, you bring them back, you see how it affects them. Did nothing. And here was this drug. This doctor told my dad was safe and almost stroked him out. And we sit there with Dr. Tom and Dr. Tom prescribing a bunch of supplements, do this, we're going to change your diet exercise. Since he's done that, not a single episode. So that doctor who, you know, asked your doctor about low T on the commercial, which was my dad. I have, do I have low T? What do they do? They test them. Yes, you have low T. Here's the drug. And they'd almost kill someone. And the, the, um, the big hospital we went to, the scans, all of those doctors did not know anything. And then I get in there and, I, and when we go back to the doctor, I'm like, uh, you know, after we go see Dr. Calm, I go to the thing and I'm you know, the doctor, I'm like, why don't you test him? I'm like, you almost struck this guy out. And the doctor's like, well, I'm like, why would you prescribe some Arimidex or something to block it? Well, we would never prescribe a cancer drug. And I'm like, so wait a minute, you're going to prescribe him testosterone? Even though he's overweight and it's going to aromatize and you wouldn't do anything to block estrogen. And the doctor didn't know anything about that. And I'm like, dude, uh, a kid with a $2 internet connection can get on there and Google this stuff or make a phone call to a guy like Tom and or, or just really anything. I mean, they will know it. It's because, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff isn't about, and, you know, and I, I don't want to say all doctors are bad, but I think the problem is, is that they just don't know. And more importantly, stuff run by drug companies because, hey, you know what? I'll take you to a, a steak dinner and, uh, you know, let's go play some golf if you sell a bunch of this stuff. You know, look how many guys, you know, the Viagra stuff was even more interesting. Look how many guys had problems with that, taking too much, heart problems, this, are you healthy enough for, you know, for intercourse? I mean, so, uh, you know, that's just my recent interaction with conventional medicine and why I, you know, I go visit Tom twice a year and get my blood work done and do everything that way. Because for me, that's the most, you know, guaranteed way instead of sitting with some doctor that, uh, I, I, you know, I'm no longer uh, a believer that, you know, I mean, we put such this idea that I had to go to school for seven years. And I'm like, dude, I want to go do a different piece, you know, play in the NFL, but it's not the same, too, you know. So, I mean, 
even uh, my neighbor up the street, who's a uh, one of the top uh, cancer docs in Orange County, rapping with him, just lost his mother and um, or his uh, his wife's mother to cancer. And I, I asked him, I'm like, you know, have you guys ever done any stuff with ketogenic diets? He's like, no, nah, diet's not really that important with cancer. And I was like, really? Because cancer <laughs> lives on sugar. So if you kind of reduce sugar, you know, have you ever heard of uh, uh, you, know, Dr., you know, Dr. Fred Hatfield or any of these people? Nothing. He's like, you know, we, we work with, uh, you know, we usually do some home surgery and we do radiation in this, you know, and it's like, that that's all you got? Like, I um, I use the analogy, you guys have seen uh, um, Armageddon, the movie, when uh, Harry Stamper walks in, he's talking to NASA and they like give him the plan. He's like, is that the best you got? You guys are NASA, you got people thinking shit up. And they're like, that's all we got. And he's like, oh, fuck. That's like, slingshot around the moon. Yeah, right? yeah. And he's like, yeah, I saw this one, strap it. That's what I feel like a lot of times we get into this stuff. And I think it's because they're stuck within conventional wisdom. Whereas, you know, guys like Rob or, you know, Tom or these different people are looking for different solutions. Like I was, I wasn't joking yesterday about Tom. Like I, I, there isn't anything that I could ever call Tom about and he's never heard of. And if it is, he'll call me back in three days and then we'll it out. So, I mean, I remember years ago, 2001, I hit Tom up, I'm like, I have cartilage problems. Like 10 years later, Tom is probably the most uh, knowledgeable people in, or person in cartilage regeneration and how to fix cartilage than anybody on the planet through either supplements, stress, I mean, all these different things to try to like <laughs> <laughs> Well, the problem is you're too busy helping everybody else to worry about yourself. But I mean, I, I think that's where it comes from. You have to be able, like, you know, and that's why I think we're, we're, we're stoked for you guys to come here is because this is your network. This is our network. And, uh, you know, bring people in like Rob and Tom and different people to really plug in and and you know, see this stuff from from ground zero and Rob City Zero has become so exciting for me because uh, I, I don't want anybody to have to be a son to sit there with their dad and get killed because some doctor prescribed them testosterone. Like this is broken. The whole thing is busted, and like we're seeing it uh, firsthand. And anybody that's in this insurance deal is seeing it, being like, I don't have to go to a doctor. If something goes wrong, like I don't know what the fuck's gonna happen. Let me share with you guys just really quick. Uh, so this pilot study that I told you about was a previous study where they found 35 cops and firefighters at high risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. You can imagine how cops and firefighters probably eat. Not great. And these guys are type, you know, borderline type 2 diabetic, uh, bad dyslipidemia and everything. They put them on a high carb, low fat, AMA, ADA recommended diet. And you know what happened? They got worse. We have two years of data on that. Eventually, they had to just pull it. And like, These guys are getting worse than the standard cop and firefighter diet. But what's cool is we have two years of, hey, we did it the way that you guys recommended that we do it. And these guys got worse. We, you know, we have all the data points on it. And then our docs, to their credit, they just said, well, if it's not high carb, low fat, what is it? Well, we've heard of like some Atkins stuff. So they started kind of Atkinsing and things got better than like, oh, we've heard about this paleo stuff. So they started paleoing. And over the course of time, now they're getting into some cool functional medicine. We're looking at thyroid. We're starting to see different patterns that are emerging with this whole thing. But we did what we were supposed to do, or they did what they were supposed to do for a good two years and made it worse. Well, Rob sends me a, I, I get pinged with a, a text that was on uh, Twitter. It was about, what, three or six months ago where uh, the FDA or the AMA comes out and it's like, yeah, uh, saturated fat has, uh, uh, dietary saturated fat has no effect on cholesterol. So they literally put that out, brought forwards it to me and he's like, wow, how long, I mean, that's huge. Because what, for the last 50 years, they've been claiming that what, dietary saturated fat elevates heart, you know, heart disease, cholesterol, all these problems. And we were like, no, it doesn't. And finally they come out and you know how much plate I've got? Zero. There wasn't a single write-up about it. I mean, 
all of a sudden somebody produces a, uh, a study about how meat is bad, and Rob Wolf gets 4,000 pings. He has to like, like, like go dig out his glasses. I don't know if you guys remember, Rob used to wear glasses, and my favorite, when you get all fired up, you're like, you like start pushing his glasses. <laughs> he's gonna have to go dig up his glasses and like, you know, fire up his computer. What does he do? And he's like, don't worry, I'm working on this rebuttal. And he has to fight this war every time somebody puts out something that has to do with protein and meat and like having something to do with anything. So Rob has to fight this thing, and you know he's like, fuck, he's like our, he's like our white knight cowboy. You know, like the like bad guys come to town, they're like, go get Rob Wolf, and he like comes <laughs> with a hat and a six gun. You, you know what's funny is uh, uh, like a bunch of the biblical stories, I could never wrap my head around it. Like Moses, I was kind of like, okay, so these people just saw a bunch of miracles, and this guy says to him, hey, I'm gonna head up in the hills. Don't do anything squirrely, no gilded calves, no, you know, uh, uh, worshiping false idols or whatever. And he comes back down and all hell is broken. So I'm like, how does that happen? But th that is the closest thing that I, I can say in, in this experience where you have people that have they'll write an email, you know, you've saved my life, my, my kids had all kinds of problems, everything's better. And then one study comes out and you're like, is red meat going to kill me? I'm like, come on, man. Your own personal experience should be better than that. Like your blood work is better. You look, feel, and perform better. Blood work is great. Do you need me, the false prophet, to tell you that you're fine? You're fine and you're fine in your own experience. You don't need anybody to tell you one way or the other. Any more questions? So, Robin, you're uh... I don't bring anybody over and and this is true like what, whether it's the interwebs or whatever there's so much interest in this stuff in general that where we get low-hanging fruit where somebody's already bought in then we we go to that and uh, you'll probably never see a, a uh, standard cold call sales force with us because we have so much interest and there's so much opportunity with, within just say like paleo, CrossFit, ancestral health scene. We, we've got three to five years of massive work that we could have a network of millions of people. I'll, I'll tell you, I, I usually keep the stuff under my hat. The goal is to have a network of providers, network of people in this, and then we crack open our own insurance company and then we start bringing in hospital systems in this. And the, it, our 33 to one return on investment is actually conservative. We can prove that because we've done the validation studies to, to show that if we change blood markers in these ways, the likelihood of heart attack and stroke decreased by this much. But what else do we know if we, if we change insulin levels, what else are we affecting? Cancer, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, fertility, uh, uh, dementia, you know, on and on and on. So the, the real return on investment is probably more like 201, 301. And I just have this sneaky suspicion that when you apply evolutionary biology to medicine, that we're operating with something that should have always been there, but has never been there. And the interesting thing is all the big powers that be can't pivot on a dime and adopt this. Like, the, you know, there's all this stuff with like Coke funding this thing and that, you, you know. Um, so, I mean, the, the uh, established systems really are not in a amenable position to adopt this. And it's actually kind of sad on one hand, but it's a huge opportunity for us on the other, because as a decentralized kind of pirate ship model, we can go in and just supplant this whole thing. I mean, it's really not that much different than what CrossFit did for fitness. You know, there, there was a governing body, but really at the end of the day, it was practitioners going out and doing this stuff 
and doing something that was more effective and more sticky and it built community and did all this stuff that was really great. And you, you, you know, um, uh, uh, it's kind of like peeing in a pool. You're never going to get it out now. Like it's, it's there forever. That, that impact has changed forever. So. <laughs> That's a great analogy. You know, uh, like um, to, to this day, I mean, we still get people all the time, you know, how come you guys still work with CrossFit? Why do you guys still feature block CrossFit football seminar when Power Athletes so dope? And it's, um, it's a really, uh, for us, it's you know, going and educating people on what we're doing. And we show up and it's, uh, you know, in the beginning, we got a little bit of pushback from people. But uh, today when we go teach it, like people are what they are, you know, when I get up and talk nutrition, they know who these people are. They know what it looks like. Like nothing is really, like, you know, this astronomically crazy idea. Like here's the deal. I, you know, I want you to eat a well-balanced diet. And I steal Dr. Tom's word, G-Biv, you know, eat for color try to rotate your foods, don't eat anything, you know, constantly looking to, you know, uh, you know, gather and go to the grocery store to try to find new things to eat, you know, have variety, don't eat the same thing, uh, you know, sleep, exercise, you know, follow a good strength conditioning program that actually builds on progression. So if you're going to do this today, we need you to do a little bit more tomorrow and kind of, you know, balance and uh, all these things and people are like, this makes sense. I mean, in the beginning, we had to go out there and fist fight people into this. And I'm like, why are you fighting me on this? Like, legs two days in a row yeah i mean you know i like yeah like i mean i got an email the other day from that guy from that coach you know mm -hmm. i mean that idea of like how you know how do you train same similar muscle groups two days in a row like why would an athlete do that and i'm like yeah because you know football players don't use their legs every day, so. yeah i definitely don't use guard daily yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know like it, it's uh it's like my, my favorite one is luke had a guy that was like uh yeah i'd still like to drink water like that whole thing and so like everybody in the seminars like got trying to find what about lemon or whatever and Luke's like, you know, what would John say? And he's like, you need to grow the fuck up and drink some water. You're a grown-ass man, act yeah. like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like being an adult and like grown men, like Jim Windler had a great deal. It's like grown men should drink water, uh, tea, coffee, and booze. There's really nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> like if, if, if you're not, you know, if you're adding other things, then obviously you're not an adult. And it was a, it was a pretty funny statement because I looked at him like, yeah, I drink some iced tea, I drink coffee, and we drink water, and we drink booze. That's really it. <laughs> but, I mean, he, and, and the funny part is I remember when I, I said it to Rob, Rob's like, you know, there's this interesting thing about community and having a drink with your friends. Yeah. That's like a big part of community. And that's why at the seminar where I'm like, hey, if your friend offers you a beer, have a beer with your friends, sit down, have a drink. Like, don't be the fucking weirdo. Because I had to go to a CrossFit deal. There was a CrossFit HQ. And like, I'm over there drinking a beer and nobody was drinking. They're like, well, we're all in this like paleo 30 day, you know, this. And I'm like, so I'm going to sit here and drink all these beers and you guys are going to have any. So I'm like double beer, <laughs> like triple bearing it. And I'm like, you know, and that goes back to that whole be weird. I'm like, you guys are all fucking weird, right? Because you know why? Because I'm always going to remember the guys that like, we didn't have a beer. And like, I was part of the deal. I mean, so a lot of like, you hear these analogies, these jokes, or these comments we make over the years, and they all are steeped in, in fact, like it's all things that have happened to us. Like that chocolate cake story, like it blows people away because that legitimately happened. Um, you know, and I think, uh, you know, we, we do a job of making good light of this stuff, but I mean, at the end of the day, like some of this stuff's tragic and you have to be able to look at it and be like, man, we got to reprogram this stuff. So um, I think it's uh, it's definitely, you know, the good fight. I always feel a little bit like as a literary major Beowulf, you know, his whole deal was like fight the good fight. And like, that's what I always feel like we're doing every day. And that's why we go teach it because it's really, a, a, you know, a great market of people that, you know, when I mean, you think about the people that are involved in this thing, uh, you know, are people that are chasing performance, want to eat real food. They, they already understand, you know, the idea of actually doing compound movements. And I, I hate the term of functional movement. It fucking kills me because everything's a functional movement if you can apply it to a certain function. 
Is bicep curl functional? Yes. We need a strong brachialis, you know, depending on your stuff. So, I mean, this idea of single joint movements are functional, right? Every movement's a functional movement if you have a function for it. So, um, you know, it, it's it, it's been really, really rewarding because, I mean, obviously, I wouldn't have met a lot of you guys if we hadn't been in the CrossFit community. I wouldn't have met any of you guys. I'd still be hanging out with Dr. Tom. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not a bad time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Roll it, rolling fire pan or uh, frying pans at the, you know, at the uh, but you know what? It's given me a great opportunity to, to not only meet you guys and then, uh, you know, and then you guys seeing it and being like, well, it has to be something more. And I was like, yeah, well, here's our really cool power. That's good information. And it, you know, and it really, um, and I, I don't know if you guys knew it, but uh, CrossFit football started because CrossFit asked me to do it. And then uh, I got so many emails, I was responding them, and Rob was like, there's no fucking way you're going to be able to respond to all these emails. You need to, like, answer one and post it up somewhere so that people can read it. And I was like, talk to me, Johnny Block. That's how it started. And then from talk to me, Johnny, uh, there was a question that was like, what would CrossFit football look like without the CrossFit? And I wrote a Power Athlete template and all that programming, and then I started getting all these emails from people being like, can you just program that? And then uh, Luke was like, let's create a Power Athlete website. And so Luke came on board and I was like, we're fucking in. And that's how it all started. And then that was power athlete. So it actually evolved from this idea of like, we were doing this little thing and people needed or wanted so much more information because what they were doing, like they were doing the programming and they were getting great results. And they were like, well, what's the rest of the stuff? Well, I mean, it's really basic. It's like, you're going to lift heavy weights on a progression and you're going to do short metabolic conditioning workouts for somewhere around seven to nine, 10 minutes at longest 15 minutes. And you're going to do it with variety and you kind of like program it and you're like, wow, when I lift weights and I do short metabolic conditioning stuff, I actually get bigger and strong. And you know, um, the other one, in the, um, uh, somebody once yelled at me in a drunken state that yeah, you ruined CrossFit <laughs> because I actually put uh, a periodized strength conditioning template, strength training template mixed with metabolic conditioning. So before me, there was only one workout a day and strength rotated in verity and strength was just another element of fitness. And what I said is strength is the platform on which everything is built. So therefore when you prioritize strength and you add in and you layer in metabolic conditioning and conditioning as needed, as long as it doesn't deviate from the goal of being strong. And that was a huge butt and then I ruined CrossFit and then what happened? Every single, all 12,000 CrossFit gyms have one. Strength periodized line. strength program within their CrossFit. Maybe less than 5% of them actually follow a randomized strength program. So what happened? The market decided what? People really wanted to be strong. People wanted to be powerful more than they wanted to be elite. Even though elite's excellent. But people want to be some big strong motherfuckers that kick in the wall. Without a bench press. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, which is weird to me. People show up to the box and they're like, oh, bench press today? Yeah. Um, well, the single best accessory work for your overhead press is to use your close grip bench press. I mean, you know, like strong triceps, you want to watch. I mean, everybody's press is stuck. I love this. Or my handstand push ups. My press, my, um, my press is not going up in six years. All right. So, you know what the definition of insanity is? <laughs> Doing the same thing over, over again, expecting a different response. So, therefore, and it's like, wait a minute, what's missing from there? That's where we came up with all the primal movements and planes of movement. The, you know, horizontal push, horizontal or up or push, or, you know, all that stuff came out of this idea of like, there is a base template, a, a, a blueprint that I call a, a human movement and, and human performance. And at the end of the day, like you can get as jiggy, you can go down the Edo Portal deal where you're doing all this mobility and all that. That's great for somebody advanced, but at the end of the day, like somebody needs to like squat, step, lunge, pull, push, press, I mean, all these things. 
And uh, once they do that, and once they're proficient in it, then we can start laying around new stuff. And uh, it's really like, doesn't seem complicated to me, but when we talk about this or when people talk to me about their programming, I'm like, I'm taking crazy pills. It's like the dude, we did a nutrition talk and the guy, um, his main diet was uh, a uh, chocolate milkshake that he was making with raw cocoa, uh, seven raw eggs, and um, a little bit of raw milk. He was like mixing it up and drinking this thing four or seven times a day. And that was his diet. And the guy was like talking to me about how great it was. And I'm looking at the dude and he's like super inflamed, body fat. <laughs> and he's shit like a goose. Oh. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but like, he, and, and, I, and I took him aside. I was like, dude, you went deep, man. Like, come back to the light, bro. <laughs> and I like talked to him and like, you know, the guy was like, this is going to be the fucking answer to human performance. It's, consum it's consuming this concoction of raw eggs, cocoa, and fucking uh, raw, like, um, uh, what is it? Um, What's the raw milk that comes the first day on the breast? Uh, the, oh, the colostrum. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so he was what? buying fresh colostrum mixing with fries and cocoa in this deal, and he had it in these, like, I mean, and he's drinking during the seminar. And, dude, the guy smells fucking terrible. <laughs> um, but, like, like that's the level. And I'm like, dude, like, let's take a step back. Let's figure out what the non-crazy approach is. I want you to lift some weights. I want you to condition. Like, uh, I want you to eat some real foods. Like, you know, if you're constantly consuming liquids, like, you know, you're not getting the digestion. It starts in the mouth. I went through the whole thing. And like the, the guy was looking for me to okay it. And I'm like, I can't fuck with okay. Like, here's the non-crazy approach. And um, you know, that's become like the, uh, the the weird thing for us is uh, what appears to be the most normal is fought against the hardest. Being like, okay, so your leg hurts. Instead of figuring out why your leg hurts, I'm just gonna give you a pill that masks the pain of your leg. And then what happens, I'm gonna keep giving them to you until you're addicted and the next thing you know, like you're like, you know, having other problems or this, I mean, you know, Kyle uh, Turley had a hell of a problem because they were uh, pumping full of painkillers and then he couldn't go to the bathroom. So what do they do? They gave him a bunch of stuff to help him go to the bathroom. And then they gave him all these uh, antipsychotics. And then he like gave him one where he was having problems and they wanted to kill himself. They wanted to kill, I mean, he was having all these issues. And like every time he went back to the doctor, they were like, that's totally normal for you to want to kill people. <laughs> I swear to God, I swear to God. They were like, yeah, that happens. Let me give you a different one. Let's see if this one works. So he's telling us a story the other day and I'm like scratching my head. He was the point where he had a backpack in the back of his car and he was just gonna drive off into the wilderness and live by himself because he was nervous he's gonna hurt other people. Mm -hmm. And every time he went to the doctor, they were like, well, let's just try this one, let's change the doses. We just have to figure out what the right blend of drugs is to help you be normal. And he's like, I don't know what that is anymore. At that point, I'm like, dude, this is crazy. Like, like he, he had a clear antipsychotic deficiency and they just needed to, you know, get it to the right level, just like we all have statin deficiencies. And well, well, he, he, you know, and, and his thing is uh, fitness. He's like, man, he goes, I, you know, I broke my body, but I know I need to exercise. When I exercise, I feel normal. And he's like, I, I have to do something. And I was like, well, you know what? Let's 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 come in. Let's film some offensive line stuff, and we're going to put together Power Athlete Football, which will be an online clinic for football stuff and teaching stuff, and we're going to uh, come in and film a bunch of clinic stuff with him. And because nobody's really teaching. Uh, college or a, a football clinic from pros in a way that's easy, like we've used with uh, Trey Heroic to be able to put out workouts and we'll help him with that and like give him, you know, something that fits within this and really help him get back into it because dude, uh, it's, it, it just, it never ceases to amaze me and Rob and I'm sure Tom will get up this, the shit that they, that I'm sure Tom, 10 times a week somebody walks in where he kind of scratches his head and he's like, hold on, I'm going to call John. He's never going to believe me. <laughs> And, you know, I mean, it's happened dozens of times. So I think, um, you know, really what I want you guys to take away from this is, uh, you know, 
happens. The conventional information isn't all you had. You guys have other resources, whether it be this or all these other things, to be able to uh, you know, provide the greatest and best information, whether it be performance training for that, like I was trying to win the CrossFit Games, or just somebody that's trying to reclaim their lives by trying to get a little bit of fitness, or that person that's like, you know, you can help somebody sleep an extra hour a day. I mean, I, you know, when I was having some issues with sleep, I mean, Tom like, calls me up and says, like, I got the CPAP machine on, I should try it. So I've been sleeping the CPAP thing, and uh, it's actually really helpful. And that's something I would have never thought, but here's somebody thinking outside the box for me. And um, it's just, you know, and, and at the end of the day, like, you know, you guys aren't alone in this. And uh, this thing will only continue to grow. And my deal is to have, like, I'm going to road this thing from, from underground. I mean, I'm going to wear out the, you know, the pylons under the pier. I'm going to collapse this thing based off of providing good information and, like, you know, putting it out there where you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to have to buy into this. This is bullshit. And, like, that's what Rob's deal and everything we've talked about. We're going to road this one from the underground. Battle the bullshit. Yeah, we're going to fight the bullshit. He does the back and like all of a sudden I get all of these numbers when I'm going through the numbers I'm looking through the lifts and there was zero correlation between anything and the only thing that struck me as I watched all the videos was that everybody was really slow and I remember like you know uh, uh, like hitting up um, and I called Lou Simmons and I called uh, Dr. Fred Hatfield and like I was trying to figure out like why people were slow and it just like it was the weirdest thing and I remember like calling these guys up and like uh, Doc Hatfield was like you know you can't expect people to move fast unless they're moving fast, you know, in a dynamic way. And like, that's where we got into the compensatory acceleration. And uh, I, you know, it was something that Zangus, the old guy that the old power with the red guard wrestle soul to train me, used to talk about all the time. Like, I want you to move that bar as violently as you can. Like, you know, and he used to joke, and I always talk about it, you know, the people that lift weights feel slow and careful, or, you know, even, you know, lift weights like old people have sex. And um, <laughs> that was old Zangus one. But, uh, you know, and that idea of being angry at the bar, and I'm going to vertical jump this thing out, and that compensatory acceleration, as soon as he said it, I was like, Doc, I know exactly what you're talking about. We got away from it. But what do we do? I went back and designed programming and compensatory acceleration, and instantly, like, that next thing, everybody hit, like, all the PRs they could, and I realized I got away from my roots. And you always kind of go back to the garage, and uh, I still get emails. People ask me about what Zangus and those guys did, and I was like, we didn't deadlift much, and we were real mad at the bar. I that think was it. One interesting thing we, we talked a lot about, he almost had to sneak the speed in yeah. by prescribing like 55, 60, 65% of what they were doing. Well, we don't really, don't tell what all I, the secrets. What I, did, <laughs> what I did is I created a, a max in a training max, mm -hmm. which was a scan. Uh, so I was like, your training max is what I want. I want you to take your max, I want you to take 10% off of your training max, and then we're going to base percentages. So what I did is by taking the training max, I could actually give a percentage that people felt good about themselves, but allowed them to move dynamically with the speed. We went and bought a Tendo unit, we started testing it. 
and really figured out how fast we needed people to move and how it all fit together. And then to the point where we watched it enough to where I could watch video get even faster. That's a point, you know, eight million, what, 0.6 meters, mm -hmm. four million meters. And then one day we deadlifted heavy and Luke um, deadlifted a one. Zero. Zero one. His deadlift, his deadlift took eleven seconds. It's not. <laughs> so I mean, you know, and then it was like I'm not proud, but I, you know what, I didn't quit. This tree didn't quit. Uh, like like that type of stuff. Yeah, and, you know, like that idea, and, and uh, you know, the people, you know, compensatory acceleration, and just really looking and trying to evolve the training, and then realizing that there's these little significant pieces that you kind of have to layer in, and then uh, progress people at a rate which they're ready for. You know, if you start talking to a kid who's an amateur day one about compensatory acceleration, like, I don't know if it's meaningful. It is, is, you know, hey, I just need you to look this way to limit your progression. You know, and like that becomes this kind of overarching deal. So I think, like you said, man, like being able to have people at your disposal that you can call, like, um, you know, like when I, when Compex approached me, uh, I, I knew I had information. And then I called Tom and talked to him. And he's like, you know, a roommate at Penn State did his PhD in EMS. Let me sell you, send you all of his unpublished research. And so, so Tom will tell you the story, but he used to travel with all of his files. So he had like 14 file cabinets of all of his information. This is pre, you know, internet, pre anything. Where he, so he had like a, uh, a U-Haul. He'd have to drive around with all of his stuff. And like, he has a funny story about this guy trying to steal it from him. But uh, he like sends me, he, he, he had some guys scan it and I get all this unpublished research about it. Like leg angle, like it's more advantageous to be at 60 degrees, 75, 90, how it all fits, you know, pieces, how to use, you know, if you do it, you're going to lose yellow. So it completely was all this great information. I was like, all right, let's test it. I mean, we did right into the program, we test it and I get all these great results back. And I think like that's where it becomes like um, what you guys don't realize is that you guys are having big research now. And it's me doing research in terms of human performance so that when somebody comes and asks me whether it's a Ken Ford, how do you do this? I'm like, and he's like, well, how many people you tested on? I'm like, probably 400. And he's like, geez, it's pretty good. I'm like, yeah, we get results. So, I mean, it's for the same reason that the Muscle Genes guys are so excited because, what well, he has a huge database of people that he can get information back. So, I mean, Tom's same thing. I mean, he's, you know, just the amount of volume of information and then what happens when you get all this stuff back, you start looking for, you know, common points in a system within it. And you realize, well, everybody that does this, does this, and everybody that does this, does this. Okay, now how do I get it here? And, you know, that's what it is about, you know, stacking and kind of layering pieces in it at the point. And the big one for us especially is um, everybody's completely unrealistic about where they are within the training lines. And I think that's what power athlete across the football is so impactful, is that people are like, well, I'm a beginner. And, uh, you know, you have Eric Willibridge who squats 1,000 pounds. All this do Eric Willibridge's program. Little do they know that Eric Willibridge is uh, like a freak of nature, but also has been training since he was 12 years old in this program. So he has 14 years of doing this. Why is it that you think you could do that program? And, you know, like really looking at it and being like, how do we know, like, what do we know physiology? How do we work with beginners? And then at which point did they hit in this next stage? And I think we were able to hyper jump uh, in two years, what it took people 20 years to get to, because people did not adhere to that idea of physiology and training people within the point at which they're, they're ready. You know, in the age old, like, you know, the, the master appears and the student's ready, same thing. When the people are ready, the program appears, we already have it. We just have to get you to that point. And uh, we get fought on that shit all the time. People are like, you know, and Levi and those guys are, you know, in, uh, you know, working with his PhD. And, you know, I'm sure if Levi were to go and say that, they'd be like, no, that's not how you do it. You do eight to 12 sets or eight, eight to 12 reps, three sets. You know, you do this and this and you know, they periodize it. And it's like, because that's conventional structure. And I think like that's what we're trying to fight against this idea of like, hey, you know, we were able to hyper jump a lot of this just for the mere fact that we just had such a big population to work with. 
and on top of it, had the opportunity to teach hundreds of seminars around the world. I don't know anybody other than people in the CrossFit community that have taught this many places to this many people on this many continents this fast. The form editor doesn't do this many. I mean, think about like, that's why these guys are all world warriors. These guys have coached on every continent to world-class athletes and they are world-class coaches because they travel the world teaching this. So to me, I mean, that's, you know, these guys are world warriors. So going to South Africa for the weekend is by far the most aggressive one. You have no idea. That's an aggressive one. Yeah. So, but I will just add value to that in terms of most of the coaches I come in contact with are only limited to either their gym and assessing and working with those athletes for college. So you get one athlete, you work with them for four years, they're limited to a basketball team of 15 guys, maybe 30 in four years. And we do 30 a weekend. So that has really accelerated the education and development, uh, I guess as coaches, it's great. So this is probably like a five hour podcast feels like. Uh, any other questions guys that you wanna get on record or we solid? Tacos are like 20 minutes away. Cool. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Tom's probably the, the expert to talk about it, but when we really looked at it, it was uh, anything, you know, right around that 80, if I could keep it under 80, and then we found a bunch of protocols to keep me under 80. Uh, but it was uh, first thing in the morning, I was always high. And then as soon as I ate, 15 minutes later, it was like 20 points less. And then, uh, but yeah, it was just a standard glucose meter, pinprick. And then um, it was pretty interesting after doing it for about two weeks and making a log, I pretty much knew just off the field because all of a sudden you're like, well, how do I feel? And then uh, there was a doctor Rob set me up with who um, was doing something similar. And he had a deal where he got hit with some Chinese food. He went out of Chinese food and his like, glucose went to like 170. And he jumped on, uh, he would just jump on his aerodyne. His bike could ride. And then in like 15 minutes, he would come down, he would take it. So then I put an aerodyne in my living room in my old house. And uh, if I ever got dosed and it went up too high, I immediately jumped on and I did the bike to try to bring it back down. And I got the point where, like, I, if I ever got hit with anything or if I ever could feel it all of a sudden, uh, I could jump on and use that non glucose uptake to really bring it back down. So um, make sure you ask Tom about it. He knows. Uh, he, he Hopefully he'll tell you the story about uh, when he was in college for his research, probably training the uh, natural bodybuilder to win the uh, – what did he win? Yeah, so Tom, so Tom trained the uh, last natural, all natural bodybuilder. All natty. All, all natty bro. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for a, a pro contest. And then, uh, so Tom, like, I, I love the story, but I'll tell you a little bit. So he goes through his whole deal. They do some uh, amazing research project. And so he thinks he's like the pinnacle and like he's with them, you know, hand up. And then the guy's dad walks up and the dad, the, the dude's dad has like 20 inch calves and like a bend in his bicep. And the dude's and like, and his uncle, right? <laughs> so like Tom was like so excited and he sees like like the dad and the uncle walk up who he probably could have gotten shaped to win the bodybuilding show in two weeks. <laughs> and he's like, and he's like, it's fucking genetics. So it's, it's, it's one of my favorite stories for Tom, but I hope he'll tell it to you. So. All right, well, let's uh, let's wrap it up, and then we'll do a little break, and then we'll have some food. So that's good stuff. Thank right, you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. 
As I've said before, if your website is also your name, you're a huge deal. Head over to robwolf.com. That's R-O-B-B wolf.com for more information, including his book, The Paleo Solution. Rob also hosts his own podcast, and it can be found right there on his website as well. Keep up with Rob the Lazy Man's Way by finding him on Instagram under the name Das Rob Wolf. That's D-A-S Rob Wolf. Until next time, bye! With no fear.